Do you ever put like a little clip at the very beginning of the podcast? I, I do always. Please put this clip at the beginning. I like listen to everything. I listen to books. I listen to podcasts, but not everybody knows you can speed up the playback to like 1.25 or 1.5. So listen, people put it on 1.5 speed because I'm going to sound way smarter at 1.5 speed than at one speed. Well, I'm a notoriously slow talker. You might have to crank me up to like three. <laughs> Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Zach Exley. Zach is currently the co-founder and executive director of a think tank called New Consensus. New Consensus works on detailed plans that think big about how governments can achieve economic renewal and transition to a green economy while tackling injustice. New Consensus is not the first ambitious undertaking for Zach, who has a very impressive and varied career in progressive politics, organizing, and political technology. The combination of my curiosity about his career and his willingness to share the viewpoints of a sometimes lonely revolutionary created by far the longest of my episodes. If you listen, I promise you'll learn a lot about Zach and how he's navigated himself amidst the union movement, pioneering the use of internet in politics, working in presidential campaigns for Dean, Kerry, and Sanders, helping the Labor Party in England and helping Wikipedia with its fundraising. He's written a book with Becky Bond called Rules for Revolutionaries about organizing, as well as created organizations like Justice Democrats. If you're interested in the progressive ecosystem and another of its influential players, you should definitely listen, maybe at 1.5 speed, and perhaps you should fund his PhD. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Zach Exley of New Consensus. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Zach, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. Thanks for having me on the show. This is really exciting. I know some of my favorite friends and colleagues have been on, on the show, so I'm excited to be here now. I'm Zach Exley, and when you start to get old, it's kind of hard to give the quick bio, but <laughs> I grew up in Connecticut. I grew up first in a little farm town, then we moved to the ritzy suburb. So we moved from like a working class town, there are some in Connecticut, to a more affluent suburb. So that's where I, in junior high school, so that's where I get my class-oriented chip on my shoulder. And then I went abroad right after high school on kind of a fluke, and I studied in China 
for a year in 1987 and 88 when China was still a real communist country and people called each other comrade. And that had lots of uh, influences on me in different directions that probably people listening would not expect. And then I went to college and I got interested in the labor movement and organizing. So I became a union organizer. But I had been a computer nerd from when I was younger. And I had been programming all through the 80s in that really glorious period of, of computers <laughs> that, that you might also remember. And so then when the internet came along, I started using the internet to see if we could organize people, which was an absurd idea at the beginning because hardly anybody had access to the internet in the late 90s, early zeros, especially not working class people. But I did all these uh, weird experiments with the internet. And back then when you did anything on the internet, you know, NPR was calling you and the BBC was calling you to interview about this thing that you did on the internet, you know? So I did a bunch of interesting projects that were just a lot of fun. That led to me hooking up with the people at moveon.org way back in the beginning of the days of early move on. And I worked with them when it, there were just like five of us there. And I worked on the campaign to try to prevent the Iraq war. And then we got into messing around in the presidential campaign in 2004. And we did this move on primary that, that really uh, ginned up online fundraising for presidential campaigns, really wound up benefiting the Dean campaign. And I worked on the Dean campaign then. And I worked on the Kerry campaign and worked on a whole bunch of campaigns from, from then all the way up in, until 2018 with a stop with Bernie in 2016. And then um, I started Justice Democrats, uh, which, which really started as a thing called Brand New Congress. And we elected a handful of members of Congress, including AOC. And then I realized through that project that we needed a progressive think tank to provide some more support policy-wise and idea-wise to the candidates that we were recruiting and running and electing. So I, and also I realized I was getting a little old for this, all this campaign drama and everything. So I started a think tank and, you know, a nonprofit think tank called New Consensus. And I've been working on that since. Unfortunately, I, I thought I was completely getting away from drama by doing a policy think tank. But if you're doing climate policy, <laughs> interacting with <laughs> climate people, of course, there's going to be drama. But I've really tried to reduce the drama through the pandemic and everything. And we're really in the background trying to do some deep work. I was involved in releasing the Green New Deal with New Consensus and with AOC and, and other groups. And so what we're working on now at New Consensus and what I'm really excited about putting, I'm putting all my time into this now is, is really trying to fill out what would the Green New Deal look like if it were a fully fleshed out program that a presidential administration was working on and was trying to enact, you know, was trying to make happen in reality. And so that's just led to a lot of really interesting questions and interesting conversations with all kinds of people. And hopefully someday soon we'll be starting to release this work in the form of a bunch of chapters of what will eventually be a very big book. Hopefully that's going to be coming out over the course of this year, 2023. So sorry if that was too long, but... Uh, <laughs> What's funny about thinking it's too long is I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions about it to draw it out. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> I've interviewed probably 40 people who've referenced you along the way. I think of you as a political entrepreneur in the space, as somebody who's been part of founding new things, of changing ideas. 
and really going a lot of times against the mainstream kind of thought in a way that's been pretty valuable to the country. And when I talk to people about you, people will say the legend or something like that, right? Like, <laughs> you know, you're young for that. Yeah. And, uh, but no, no, it, it, it makes me feel, it, it makes me feel very good for you to say that because when you find yourself in your fifties and you don't have any money and you don't have a big job and, <laughs> and everybody in the world is, uh, you know, start for forgetting about you, uh, then the, all you've got left is a handful of people telling somebody that you're a legend. That's, that's all you got. So if you have that, that's when I just pack it up, uh, pack it in and go apply for the job as a Walmart greeter, which in Springfield, where I, where I live most of the time, that's the next step. Someone once referred to me as like the OG in political technology. And I, yes. had, to go, I had to go look yeah. it up in the urban dictionary to make sure I know what you mean. <laughs> but it's true. That's why this is going to be a great conversation because we, I feel like we were both there at the creation, right? Of this whole thing. Isn't it amazing? All this stuff that's taken for granted about how political campaigns work. You know, just the fact that a Democratic or a Republican primary presidential primary candidate can raise tens of millions of dollars, even a hundred million dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars. What am I saying? We remember the days when it was like astounding and absurd and obscene that John Kerry raised $7 million in the Democratic primary. That was an astronomical sum. When I was in college in the 1980s, I wrote a paper about computers and politics Whoa. <laughs> Where I researched the early days of that, which goes back to Winthrop Rockefeller running in the 1960s and doing like stuff in, for governor in Arkansas and doing stuff with cards that they did back in the day. Yeah. And he was like making a list for direct mail or something. There's or, always yeah. a predecessor, but the internet is like a new thing. People don't realize that it wasn't always there and, and that you were around doing stuff in that regard. Well, sorry if I'm dragging this on too long, but it was it was like it was incredibly exciting back then when back when you were inventing these first very first products that all the campaigns were were using that were totally revolutionary. And when I was working on these campaigns, and I guess when you were working on the campaigns too, and it was so incredibly exciting to see this stuff happen for the very first time and to imagine the potential. And then four years later, you'd see a huge chunk of that potential that you were imagining get realized on the next campaign you were working on and the next one. And it just, it was really amazing. And one of the things we should talk about is all the unrealized potential as well. It's always a work in progress. I watched a YouTube by a quote, Mr. Reagan recently that referred to you as quote, the overlord, the real brains behind AOC. And I thought, Maybe you would like to comment on that. Is that a fair uh, assessment of, of your role in helping no. her get elected? <laughs> no, no, no. And that's absurd. That's absurd. And, and, th and this guy, Mr. Reagan, is really evil. But the thing that I do love about that video, though, is because he and a handful of other people like really got into trying to figure out, because they see this whole thing as this giant conspiracy, right? And so they, they really got into trying to figure out like who everybody was, you know, and they got everybody wrong. They have this horrible sexist 
misogynist view of AOC is, it gets worse and worse with everybody, everybody that they're talking about, except me, of course. This guy, he starts talking about, you know, who's this guy, you know, who's behind everything. And it, I'm not behind everything at all. I've had almost no interactions with AOC, you know, over the course of her career. But they did so much research on me. They were calling people in my life and trying to, like, there was this pr- guy who said he was like a private investigator trying to get to the bottom of, because they were really trying to figure out, like, if I was working for the Chinese Communist Party, because my right-wing trolls say that I work for the Chinese Communist Party. My my Democratic Party trolls say that I'm working for Putin, right? So I'm either working for Putin or the Chinese Communist Party, depending on who you talk to. But anyways, this guy was like, Zach, what you got to understand about Zach is that he doesn't actually want the power. He doesn't want the recognition. He just wants to see this revolution happen. And then he's just going to like kick back with his cat in a cabin somewhere. And I guess he was referring to... uh, What's the guy's name again? The Snap guy from Marvel. Oh, I don't know. You don't know? See, we're, no, we, we sound did, like two really old guys here. He did say that your end goal is Soviet-style Marxism. Right, which is not the case. I mean, that's so specific and random and, and weird. There are all these little organizations in the U.S. still, you know, as there were when we were young, whose goal is 19... 32 style Soviet communism, you know, and let's have that in America. It's really interesting, you know, to have your goal be to recreate not only an, a historical moment from almost a hundred years ago, but also from another country and another country that was at a like completely different stage of development than the United States is now and had totally different political traditions. It was a totally bizarre goal. Not to mention a example of government that was a pretty bad one. Yeah. 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 So I'm curious about your roots. So you said you grew up working class and then in the suburbs. I grew up in Enfield, Connecticut in the beginning. What did your parents do? They were originally teachers and then they moved on up when the economy was growing and up the career ladder. My parents did really well across the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. And so my dad went from being a teacher to a newspaper guy to a PR guy, and then like had a little one person PR consulting shop. And my mother started as a teacher and then went into the State Department of Education. So that's what they did. What were their politics like? Very progressive, liberal people. You know, one of my early memories was when the our local TV station like featured them for being a couple where uh, both parents worked and where they supported each other in working and shared the housework, you know, and shared the childcare. And this was a radical idea at the time. I guess it wasn't radical, but it was new or it was something that they were still talking about on TV. But the first town I lived in was, it was a rural working class town and it was where they grew tobacco. And so I got out of the town just a year before I would actually go work in the tobacco fields and actually earn really good money. The teenagers earned some incredibly high hourly rate back then. But then we moved to West Hartford, Connecticut, where everybody was really preppy. You know, This was back in the days of the preppy handbook, which some of your listeners will remember. I yeah. met the author of that one time. At a really? Wow. Yeah. She was, she was very charming. I mean, it was sort of ironic and making fun of them. But at the same time, they took it very seriously. And I did not have the pink shirts with the green alligators. And I didn't have the 
the belts with the whales on them and all these, like I showed up with my jeans and t-shirt and it, things didn't work out very well for like the next three years. Yeah. So. <laughs> you, you mentioned that you studied after high school in China. H- how did that come to be? And what, what did you learn over there? It was kind of a random fluke because in my fancy town and fancy public high school, we had a Chinese class uh, that was funded by the Ford Foundation or something. And we had a teacher who was actually Taiwanese, but she had just gone to China and taught English, I think, in China at a university in Xi'an, China. Mrs. Cho was her name. And I was talking with her one day and she was like, what do you want to do when you get out of here? And I was like, what I really want to do is I just want to go somewhere else in the world that's extremely different from here and learn what else there is in, you know, outside of Connecticut. And so she was like, why don't you go to China? She said, all you have to do is write a letter to this university and they'll take you. So that's what I did. I wrote a letter to this university and they wrote me back and said, sure, come on over. And uh, they said, just go to the Chinese embassy and get yourself a student visa. So there was just some letter writing back and forth. That, uh, some of your young listeners will be, I guess, baffled to think about all this being arranged by sending paper through the mail, but that's how we did it. Yeah. So I literally got on a plane after just communicating. I mean, you know, you wouldn't check into an Airbnb now this way, you know, like you wouldn't trust checking into a, an Airbnb without like a confirmation and a paid reservation and everything. But at age 17, I literally got on a plane and flew to China and showed up at a university and gave them like $500 for my tuition room and board for the year and studied Chinese for a year in this little program. So there was a foreign student dormitory with 10 American students and 10 Japanese students. And the rest of the American students were all from a couple of different college programs. And the Japanese students were like me. They just came over individually and they were really interesting people mostly trying to escape the much more traditional expectations of the Japanese like sort of career progression. These were interesting people that didn't fit in. You know, there were women that that didn't want to have to get married or give up their jobs when they got married, which was still the case back then. And it was people who didn't go, you know, they didn't qualify to get into a really fancy university. So they were just trying to learn Chinese to start a business or do trade or something. And they were all different ages it was really difficult to learn Chinese by talking with Chinese students back then because their English was so good because university students in China back then, it was, it was a really pure meritocracy. Nobody had any money in China at this time. Like there were literally not a single family with any kind of money. And if anything, there was like sort of a reverse class bias where you were, had a better chance of getting into college if you were from a working class background and stuff. But anyways, there was, you know, so as, as you probably know, there was millions and millions of people in China every year taking these exams to get into university. And the people that made it into a, a national university were just like insanely brilliant. So they spoke amazing English and there was no way they were going to let me speak Chinese with them <laughs> they, because there were only 10 English speakers at the entire university. There was only 100 foreigners in the entire city at that time. And so they were like, no, you're speaking English with us. These students were all bound for, you know, amazing things. You know, now they're all scattered around the world running huge companies and running China and being diplomats and everything. So anyways, I learned Chinese talking to the Japanese students who thankfully 
could not speak a word of English and didn't want to learn English and didn't care about learning English. So it was a great experience. The main thing was that I saw this other society that literally could not have been more different than the United States. And also, I saw what a nation could accomplish. It's the same kind of thing that the United States accomplished in the late 1800s, you know, just this incredibly rapid industrialization, which took the US from being a very poor developing country to being a very rich industrialized country. Even though the US still had tons of poverty, you know, it was the richest country in the world with a huge middle class, an incredible thing that had never been accomplished anywhere. So China did something very similar, you know, in just a just a few decades, built this really incredible economy where everybody was doing okay. They built that coming from a place where just about everybody was on the brink of starvation and where like tens of thousands of people were dying, if not hundreds of thousands of people dying, you know, sometimes every day just from disease and starvation and flood, you know, and it was just a complete basket case and incredibly poor. And so in such a short time, everybody got educated, everybody got access to healthcare, everybody got a warm, safe, you know, dry place to live, all this stuff. And I didn't actually realize how incredible it was until I later went and studied in some other countries that were developing countries that did not go through that process, right? And so where people did not live in dry, safe homes and they did not have access to the food they needed to live and did not have access to healthcare. So then I really got the difference. Seeing what a society could accomplish, kind of that blew me away, but also just seeing like how incredibly differently structured a society could be. Like everybody had the exact same salary pretty much. Everybody lived in pretty much the same quality apartment, you know, in a city or in the countryside in the same quality kind of house. People literally called each other comrade, you know, like that's, that's how people called each other. There were loudspeakers everywhere and everybody listened to the, to the same news and comedy routines. And then, you know, and then there'd be like, you know, uh, a discussion over these loudspeakers of like for the whole university, or if you worked in a factory, like for the whole complex of factories that you were part of, there'd be these loudspeakers talking about like, hey, there's been this little problem, you know, and we really got to work on this. And then, oh, this guy committed a crime. And people were really a part of, of a society. I wouldn't call it a community, but they were part of like, they were really part of this thing. The doors didn't even lock from the inside. Somebody could always come in, you know, it was really... Uh, completely different. I know I'm going on for a while here, but like every single person in the entire country was part of a thing called a work unit, which I think was about 10 or 20 people. And if you really want to see what that was like, one movie to watch is The Last Emperor because The Last Emperor of China became this ordinary Chinese worker. And the and the movie like shows his experiences in this work unit, you know, where they're involved in every aspect of your life, you know. So it's really just how can a whole country of a billion people at that time or more, I guess, how could a whole country like that be organized to such a degree? And that was just an amazing and kind of mind-blowing thing to see. And uh, yeah. What does it say about you that what you wanted to do coming out of high school was have such a different experience than your peers? Isn't it like that now? Don't a lot of people want to go all over the place? Like, it, like I, I had a lot of friends who... I think of it as pretty courageous. Maybe it isn't for some personalities, but to 
to uproot yourself from the comfort of the known and to go somewhere where you're going to struggle with the language, you're going to struggle with the culture, you're going to learn a lot, but you're going to be tested. I have plenty of friends who've done things like that, but I haven't. Yeah. I think as I get older and more, hopefully more self-aware, I think one thing it says about me is that I just kind of had this built-in compulsion to do weird stuff that was going to be hard and uncomfortable, but really exciting. And I don't think that's such a great quality, actually. Like, I hope my kids do not grow up with this quality. And at least one of them seems to to not be growing up with this quality. So, <laughs> so that's a good thing. <laughs> but uh, yeah, cause it's a little crazy, you know, it's, it's not a bad thing, but, but I think when, if your whole life is like really driven from that kind of compulsion, I think at a certain time you should really shut that off and like get down to business of not just chasing something really weird and exciting, which hopefully I'm doing now as I work on policy papers at a think tank. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned that in college at UMass Amherst, you got interested in labor history and stuff like that. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And so, and the thing is, my experience in China did not make me a left winger. It actually made me, a, it actually turned me into a libertarian temporarily. So I was kind of a conservative libertarian. And who knows where I would have gone if I hadn't had some other experiences later. It's not actually because things were so terrible in China, because actually people in 1987 overall were super happy. A lot of people would criticize me for saying that. So yeah, I, I, I traveled a little bit more and saw more of the world. And that kind of took me back to being, I wound up getting kind of excited about the left and I read labor history and I was really moved by labor history, by like reading about what the labor movement had been like back in the late 1800s and in the 1930s and 40s. Eugene Debs and Samuel Gompers and people like that. Or are you talking about all around the world? All around the world, but, but, but also in America. Because, you know, I, I grew up in, in this Reagan era when it just felt like it was so conservative and it felt like the American people were kind of fundamentally conservative and just really not interested in change. You know, I grew up a stone's throw away from like really crushing horrible poverty in Connecticut. The five cities in Connecticut were on the list of the poorest 10 cities in the country, even though Connecticut was the richest state in the country. And I had seen really, really crushing deadly poverty around the world where I had traveled and lived in a bunch of different places. I just have one of those weird personalities where you can't shut that off, you know? So I'm just like in this constant state of kind of frantic despair, you know, that I've had to deal with. But in that state of frantic, you know, panic and despair over what, you know, billions of people are going through, I thought that, you know, we need to do something about this. But if you're an American living in America, it's like growing up in the 80s, the vast majority of the people just really couldn't be bothered, you know, like who cares? Uh, and so how do you deal with that? So when, so when I would read about the labor movement back in the old days, when millions and millions and millions of like working class and who were then middle-class Americans were organizing, you know, not just for a raise, but for a fundamentally transformed just society for everybody. And if you get into reading this stuff, it's 
really amazing. Like it's amazing to read about something like the populist movement, which was part of the labor movement, even at the same time being sort of outside and adjacent to the labor movement. And you know, the populist movement was was like a rural Southern and Midwestern and Western thing. It was like evangelical Christian, Southern, Western, Midwestern, like Texas, Oklahoma. It was totally socialist and radical. In small towns and small cities across the South and, and Midwest, your utility company is owned by the city. And everybody loves their utility companies because they do a really great job. Co-ops all over the place, farmers co-ops all over the place. Farmers get a lot of their stuff from co-ops in a lot of parts of the countries. All this stuff was founded by the populist movement. And so just reading about this time when these people who you grew up thinking, you know, as a lefty, you're kind of trained that, you know, rural people in the South um, are and have always been super conservative. It's not the case at all. So, you know, you learn about this kind of stuff and that was all very inspiring to me. And so then when I thought, how do we change this country? I thought maybe the labor movement is part of that answer. And the labor movement when I was in college was offering training. And so I went through a training program with the unions it was run by the AFL-CIO. It was called the a- AFL-CIO Organizing Institute. And I went through this training program and it, it was like going to like the McKinsey training program. It was like a six-week boot camp. You know, they rent you a car, they put you in a hotel. In our case, it was a very cheap car and a very cheap mold-infested hotel <laughs> or motel. But nevertheless, we were there and getting trained. It was an amazing experience. And yeah, I hung out in the labor movement for most of the 90s, learning how to organize, that was a very transformative experience. Tell me a little about what you learned about organizing there. I saw that was like about six years for you of doing that at least. You know, I learned two things. I One thing I learned was what was wrong, in my opinion, you know, in my conclusion, what was wrong with the way most of the left, the community organizing kind of tradition which became the labor organizing tradition, I learned what's wrong with all of that and what's wrong with that approach to organizing. And, and then I learned what workers are capable of in terms of organizing. You know, if it can just be set up in a certain way. Um, and, you know, if a few conditions can be put into place, which sometimes fall into place randomly on their own, or, you know, not by a union, right? Or not by a professional union organizer. Sometimes these conditions fall into place and a union gets organized. For example, the the Amazon victory in New Jersey, um, that was a case where the whole reason they were able to win was because no professional unions were involved. <laughs> you know, <laughs> a group of workers that had the right ingredients to, um, to succeed and a couple other things that happened in that case, which were really interesting, allowed that campaign to succeed against all odds. What I learned was if you can set up just a few conditions that any group of people are totally equipped, properly equipped, sufficiently equipped to run a campaign and win whatever it is that they need in that situation. Yeah. And I I think that's something that isn't widely known or understood. Personally, I would really love to go get a PhD and study this topic, actually. I can't do a PhD because I have to like work, you know, but uh, <laughs> if anybody wants to fund me to do this PhD, though, call me. Why did you leave the, the labor organizing and what did you do next? This is going to sound so obnoxious and so whiny, but if you organized a lot of workers back then, 
in a union local, you became a threat, you know? <laughs> so when I finally figured out how to organize a lot of workers, um, and I was so naive at the time, I just got a call and it was like, it's time for you to get out of this local and you're not you welcome there anymore. To the leadership, do you mean? Yeah, because in, in these little local unions, um, unions are all different and all local unions are different. And there's lots and lots of really amazing democratic dynamic unions. But then there are also local unions that are like run by a family or run by a couple of friends. Those leaders do get elected but they get elected at like a secret election where 35 of their friends show up from the membership and elect them out of thousands of members, you know, and, and in a lot of these unions, the members don't even know that they're part of a union. And so this is the sad fact of some of the labor movement, right? Obviously not all of the labor movement. The place where I really figured out with a, a couple of other, a couple other organizers, we figured out how to start winning campaigns. And then we just started winning, winning, winning these private sector campaigns against really, really tough union busters. And, you know, usually if you win one of those kinds of campaigns, you win by like two votes after an horrible ordeal. But we were like winning by like three to one margins or even four to one margins. And we were, and we weren't even working that hard. What was different with what you were doing? It's so hard to get people to understand what I'm about to say, because there's sort of, there's two sort of dogmatic ways of approaching organizing, any kind of organizing. And one is I'm the organizer. I know what to do. I'm going to tell everybody what to do. And then we're going to win if everybody does all the really, really hard, horrible things that I tell them they have to do. The other approach is the workers know best, you know, or the community members know best. And if we just let the people lead, everything's going to work. But we didn't do either of those approaches. We understood that something needed to change in the workplace, like something needed to be introduced from the outside. Otherwise, all the workers would have already been organized because there were all these workers with grievances, getting their pay cut, staffed short all the time, working crazy, not able to take care of their patients. I was organizing in the healthcare world. So they would have already organized. So we had to introduce something. But we basically approached the workers with the kind of relationship that like a lawyer has with a client. We were bringing something like a lawyer brings knowledge of how the court system works, right? And a good lawyer will work with you to, you know, get through that court system, meeting your needs, you know, and winning what you need. And they'll provide you with the strategy and, and a little bit of coaching and training along the way. So we brought a proposal to, to groups of workers. And we said, we've got a union, we've got all these members, they want to grow the union, and we want to organize all the healthcare workers in this state. And this was Minnesota, where most of the healthcare funding was overwhelmingly state funded, right? So we we're like, we're going to organize all the healthcare workers in the state and become a political force. That's how we're going to actually change the equation, because we're going to be able to lobby for better funding, better regulations, and all that stuff. And so we had a long-term plan to really accomplish something significant, not just dignity at work, right? So we, we said, if you're interested, we would love to work with you. But here's how the process works, and here are a few things that you're going to need to do. And in the beginning, it's really interesting, because in the beginning, we, we approached them that way, which was really a radical departure from how we were trained to do it. 
And we approached them and we said, and we, we kept the old part. And the way, the strategy to win is you have to do all these really hard things every single day and you have to do whatever we say because it's really hard. But the choice is yours. It's up to you and you guys are going to be in charge. And so you're going to be leading the union meetings. You're going to be the real voice and face of the union. We're just going to be advising you. So that worked. But the interesting thing was we, we then started taking things away. And the reason we started taking things away was because the workers hated most of the stuff we were making them do like all these house visits. There was this dogma among union organizers and as there is today among political and grassroots organizers that knocking on people's doors is the way to change the world, right? This is going to become a sensitive conversation now, speaking to the guy who invented the software to enable organizers to knock on all the doors. I can't claim uh, that, by the way. That's more Mark Sullivan side of the company. But <laughs> Okay, okay. <yeah. laughs> I love knocking on doors. I love talking to people, but the workers kind of hated it. They were like, look, trust us. We can talk to the people at work. And the way we set up the campaigns, which I could get into if you want, but I might be going on into too much detail here, but the way we set up the campaigns and the way we started them, the way we advised the workers to start them and the way they did start them was just a total game changer. The way they started with, it was really the workers like announcing together at work that they were organizing we assembled a leadership team. That's how we started the campaigns. We identified who the real leaders were in the workplace. We got them together in a secret meeting. They made the decision. And very often, there were super anti-union people at that meeting. But because they saw, like just you know, ideologically anti-union, but because they saw that all of the leaders in the workplace, the people they respected, the people that were really their colleagues and the some of the most important people in their life, they were all there when they saw that most of the people wanted to join the union. Often these ideologically anti-union people would become some of the best union leaders. That process got them bought in. Yeah, like it, it wasn't a union anymore. You know, it was a real organization. You know, it wasn't a union as they understood it as some foreign, weird communist thing. It was like their coworkers that were going to win a bunch of power and make a lot of things right at work where they spent most of their life. That changed everything kicking off the campaign. We also would do these worker written newspapers and we would just say, anybody wants to write something, we're going to put out a worker written newspaper and we'd have them come up with a name for it. And so they could really remember that this thing was happening, you know, and people would sometimes just stay there and just like write on a piece of paper, the thing they wanted to go. Yeah, this was before email, you know, so sometimes people would, uh, would type something up and uh, I'd go pick it up from them, you know, and then I'd go to Kinko's and print out this newspaper. And so we started it with the leaders announcing to their coworkers all at once and to the boss, we're having a union. And with this newsletter that everybody could read that really gave voice to these leaders. And it turned out that basically nothing else was necessary. Like the workers just had it. Like they just knew how to handle everything else that came at them. I'm, I'm having trouble squaring all of that learning and success that seems like came to you a little iteratively with the frustration of what you told me that you left because you became a threat, you know, by doing this kind of thing. That seems like it would be pretty upsetting for you to have both this success in bunch of campaigns and this feeling that your learning was not being adopted in a broad way across the union movement, say. It was really disappointing. I walked away in kind of a daze, you know, just like really not knowing 
what I should do. And, you know, like there was this conference where uh, it was like the organizing teams from all the locals in the union from across half the country. And they were celebrating our team. You know, they were like, you guys organized more private sector workers than any other of our 2000 locals, you know, everybody needs to learn from them, you know, and all that. Then we started telling our story about how we did it. And it was just like, shut up, stop talking, you know, because it just conflicted with the orthodoxy. You know, that was one of my early experiences of like, I had actually read about this and studied this, this paradigm shift problem, right? That, you know, you can, you, there, there can be a, a better way can come along or something can be discovered and just like people will not accept it. Do you know that, that book by Thomas Kuhn, the structure? Yeah. yeah. I mean, like yeah. the, in science, they, you essentially had to wait for a certain class of scientists to die off for a new paradigm to be accepted and to take over for an old one. And, and sometimes I think that's probably true in other parts of society. I think that in the in a realm like organizing or business, you know, like how to run a business, how to organize a union in these human kind of problems, I don't think that there's ever actually the paradigm shift to get to this other thing that just definitely works better. Even in most realms of science, I don't think it works that way. I'm kind of a like, you know, armchair historian of science kind of uh, person, you know, I like reading about that stuff. But definitely in things like, you know, physics, you get that like Isaac, you know, it, because it's something that's so perfectly repeatable. Once you get the the fundamental laws of motion, which can be just really easily tested on any pool table. Interesting fact, pool tables came along at the same time as Newton's laws of motion and started to be discovered simultaneously all over Europe where people were playing pool on tables. Yeah. When you think about it, you know, like before that, there was really nowhere for people to see objects in isolation bouncing around. I remember playing pool in college and thinking the angle of incidence equals the angle of reflection or something yeah. about you can see it. hitting the edge. Yes. And bouncing I mean, off you, of the same angle. Yeah. When you have two balls and the cue ball hits one and it stops, you know, the one in the middle stops and the other one goes, it's just so clear, but nobody ever could see that until those kinds of built objects that could operate that way came along. But basically, even in other fields of science, like, like medicine, you know, you don't really have these, you have very few of these like paradigm shifts in like cancer treatment, you know, where everybody's like, oh, now we really know how to cure this cancer. That that really doesn't happen. And I think it's because it, the world is just so freaking complicated and everything is so contextual and contingent. And so I think part of the problem was that we had a little team that had a lot of success at this one local. And at the time, I was definitely very arrogant, more arrogant than I am today, I hope. I hope I'm less arrogant today is what I mean to say. And, and, I, and I was like, we've discovered this new thing. And these people are idiots for not re recognizing and, and following. There were a bunch of ingredients in the team that we had. I think we brought something that, that is universal, which was that we were just like desperately committed to winning. And we were really willing to throw out 
all orthodoxy. And I think those ingredients, you know, we're willing to just experiment and experiment. And if there's one theme through, through my career, it's like constant experimentation. That's what I love. And to the point where it drives the people that I work with completely crazy. And it actually gets really counterproductive if, if it's not happening in exactly the right context. We learned how, how to do that. And yeah, people were not interested in, in having their orthodoxy messed with in the labor movement at that time, not where I was working, not in the union where I was working. And if you organize a bunch of workers, you know, the president of the local and their 35 friends can easily be ousted if you just like call two people. Like if we, if I just called one person, you know, who was a leader in one of the workplaces and said, the election's coming up in three months or tomorrow, bring everybody down to vote for you. You should be the president of the union. You know, so it's too much of a threat. And so, uh, so that's like... Did you ever think about getting yourself elected as president? Of- I know I'm so naive because like when I finally realized like why I had sort of been pushed out of this situation, I was like, oh, <laughs> like I could have been the president of the union. But no, but here's what I, what I was getting at before about the PhD I would really like to do that, um, that one of your very successful listeners should fund me to do because it will be a great advance for politics is I'm just trying to set up my retirement here since I haven't done so in any other way is I think that like university educated, you know, upper middle class, yuppie professional ruling class people, however you want to say it, should not be running unions and they should not be running any organization that is supposed to be representing working class people. And it's not out of some moral thing like, and so this is why I did not become a a president of a union local. This is not out of some moral thing that only workers should represent workers. It's just that in general, like the vast, vast majority of the time, a kid that grew up in West Hartford, Connecticut and went to UMass is not going to be good at running a local a big part of the reason why local why why we have these problems at local unions why unions are often so poorly run is because they're not being run by people that came up out of the workplace you know and um and I'm not saying at all that just putting workers from the workplace into leadership is going to work in fact there's a long history of the university educated professional yuppies who run unions there's a long history of them recruiting people, workers, to like be their successors. And that really doesn't work out very well usually. And it's because they're kind of just picking somebody that appeals to their sensibilities or maybe who just follows orders. But there's so few cases where like an actual worker from the shop floor gets a bunch of people together, challenges the leadership, and takes over a local. That just almost never happens. I'd be curious if we could run the experiment at that time of you contending for that office to see what would have happened along the way. I would have won. But then but, what, would you have been yeah. good at it and so on? I want to move forward a little bit. It seems to me like that big, that 1999 to 2002 period where you get into independent internet work is a very interesting one in your career. It was fun. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about some of the things you did, which I'm familiar with to some small degree. And how did you also make ends meet during that period? Bumper stickers. 
<laughs> selling bumper stickers. <laughs> the one that got me my job at Move On was because they they wanted to sell this bumper sticker was Regime Change Starts at Home. Because if, if you remember, which not all of your listeners will, that Bush was starting this war in Iraq. Bush too was starting a second war in Iraq talking about regime change. You know, we need to do regime change in Iraq. And so I made a bumper sticker that said regime change starts at home right then. And a lot of people bought it. I mean, I was making like two or $3,000 a month, you know, and I was living on that. And, uh, and I, I'm so bad at business and money because if you give me enough to just like have a computer and an apartment, you know, and like be able to go out to eat for cheap food whenever I want. I just don't want anything else, you know? So I never tried to optimize this business or like, this was in the early, early days of drop shipping, you know? So I had my own online store that I coded myself. This is like one of 55 businesses I easily could have turned into if I had just been a little smarter, turned into like, you know, I could have made Shopify, you know, back then and been rich now. I was processing the credit cards with like a little program that I wrote in like bash, you know, I was sending out emails to everybody. So I was mass emailing people that signed up on these websites that I made. And I was mass emailing them with like a little, because there was no such thing as a mass emailer back then. So I was mass emailing them with the script that I wrote that was running from my PC, sending emails one by one. And I didn't even have internet actually. I would go down to the Kinko's, you know, and like plug in for a couple hours a day and uh, and send and, and do it that way because I was sort of having a little Zen retreat for most of that time where I didn't have internet or TV or anything. I'm sounding really, really odd. Yeah, but sorry. <laughs> I don't think odd. I think, I think entrepreneurial. What was GWBush.com and what happened there? That's how I first did something that, you know, got viewers, right? And basically... I had left the labor movement. I was sulking around wondering, you know, is it possible to save the world? What am I going to do with myself? And I was and I was checking out this internet thing that had happened when I was out living in the Motel 6 for the last 6 or 7 years, you know. And so everybody was talking about the internet. This was 1998. So I started playing around and I was actually working as a contract programmer, just like an hourly programmer, making an astronomical hourly rate from what I, you know, could have imagined. I, you know, I was making like $30 an hour, you know, and doing really stupid little programming stuff for banks and stuff. These corporate environments were so poorly organized that they would bring me in as this incredibly expensive temp and then not give me any work. And I would literally sit there at this really amazing computer that was connected to this thing called the internet. I taught myself all about the internet and I started learning how to build websites and stuff. And randomly, I read about George W. Bush running for president. And if you remember back then, none of us knew who that was. And we were like, wait, there's some mistake. Like I'm reading an article from 15 years ago because... We already had a president named George Bush, but like, oh no, this is his son. And it turns out his son is really stupid and his son is a Coke addict and his son has all these DUIs and has done all this terrible stuff with drug policy, despite being a druggie himself. So I was like, man, this is crazy. So I went to look for information on him. And so I typed in gwbush.com because I heard that candidates have websites now, but nothing came up. The blank screen, you know, like there was nothing. So I reserved gwbush.com and then I put a parody website there. I put a parody at the website, which made fun of, and this was my, and the only reason I did this was to learn how to build a website. 
as you can today. You can hit save as, you know, web page. So I did that with his web page. And I was like, what? You can just save the web page? And then I put the web page on the internet. And then I started editing it. I started editing it. Exactly. And so I made this spoof website about how George W. Bush was going to forgive all the drug prisoners and let them out as long as they, like he did, had learned from their mistakes. Because that's what he would say. I learned from my mistakes. And, you know, and he, he put all these young kids in jail by changing these laws, you know, for like tiny trace amounts of of drugs and stuff, despite him having been a big drug user. I just thought this hypocrisy. So I put up this website and then his campaign went on the attack. And like literally, you know, the campaign, uh, like like Carl Rove, and the, who was the campaign manager, I guess, or the chairman back then, and Ben Ginsburg, who's like a really big figure. Like Ben Ginsburg was, was the lawyer that... He was like the RNC lawyer. Yeah, yeah. he was the one that like fought to win Florida in 2000. And, uh, and so, so yeah, so he was the campaign lawyer at the time. And so I was having these inane email conversations and then just like posting the conversations on the website. And, uh, and so he, and then they started talking to reporters and they were sending all these reporters to the website. And that's the only reason anybody ever saw it. And, you know, they call this the Barbara Streisand effect. I was a big beneficiary of that. And so then I was going on TV. This was, you know, so I had my first experience going on TV, which was, you know, a really weird experience. It was like when you cross over from being somebody who watches TV and then you're on TV, it's a really interesting thing, even if you just do it once, because it tears down this wall, you know, of suddenly like all these big, giant, national, important things that seem impenetrable and inaccessible, they're just so silly. Like the newscaster was not wearing pants, literally. They were just walking around and there were like bugs flying around that they had to swat. And it was like, wait, there's like nothing fancy going on here. And you can say whatever you want and and they will actually respond to it. There's no corporate media that's controlled and orchestrated. Like they're actually totally mess withable. They kept calling. I kept going on TV. I kept getting these interviews and I just kept messing with the George W. Bush presidential campaign and actually becoming a story in it. You know, there were all these big front page stories for like six weeks about this battle between the Bush campaign and this 28-year-old programmer. That was interesting. So that was my first introduction. And then I had this big, you know, list of people who had engaged with me on the website. I had this website that people were coming to visit. And crucially, I had bumper sticker income uh, <laughs> that that allowed me to not do those stupid bank jobs anymore. So, yeah. And then I just kept doing silly projects like that to sort of see what you could do on the internet. You did some distributed organizing with protests and stuff? Yes. Yeah. They were the first, what did we call them for a while? Like flash mobs or something. Flash right? mobs. That's yeah. right. Yes. A couple years later, they started calling them flash mobs, but this was the first flash mob ever. And it was during the election crisis in 2000, I put up a website that allowed people to agree on a place to meet. And we were going to have one time. And so it's just like, what's the place where everybody should meet for this protest on Saturday? And, uh, and it quickly just blew up. And I used e-groups 
which turned into Yahoo groups later, you know, and it was like the first like discussion forum software or, you know, website that you could just use. And so I just created e-groups for every city because it was too hard to communicate with everybody. But we had this site where, where people could like agree on the location. And, and there was uh, hundreds of protests with several thousand people at a bunch of the protests and hundreds of people at the other protests. And for me as an organizer, you know, seeing this, I, I wrote, if anybody's interested, I, they can read the article I wrote about this for Mother Jones back then. If you just search Mother Jones and Exley, you'll find the article. I just wrote up the experience. Like as an organizer, I didn't knock on a single door. I didn't call a single person, you know, and many thousands of people showed up and held orderly protests with signs, with unified branding, unified message, all this stuff. And it was just, to me at that time, it was as an organizer, it was like the most exciting, most fascinating thing. And then Move On called me a couple of years later. And so I went to work there and that was like, what's the right analogy for that? It's like being an actor in your local community theater and then getting discovered by a Broadway show, you know, except back in those days, Move On was the only online organization. <laughs> it was like getting discovered by the Broadway show if there was only one Broadway show. I talked to Joan Blades on the podcast, yeah. who was one of the co-founders, and I've talked to a bunch of Move On people over time. What was that early Move On like, and how did you fit in as an organizing director? Uh, it was amazing. It was really just the most incredible experience, and one of the best experiences I've ever had. And that's really thanks to um, to Joan Blades and Wes Boyd, the founders, who, who are a, a couple, and they had been tech people, and they had kind of a similar experience where they they started a the first like online petition that was actually attached to a database, as opposed to. Do you remember, some people might remember when people would put names at the bottom of an email. When it got to a certain length, you would then send it back to somebody, you know, and so there were petitions that circulated that way. But Wes and Joan built a web page that actually put names and emails into a database. And it was over the Clinton-Lewinsky scandal. Censure and move on. Censure and move on, right. Yeah. It's like, come on, guys, Republicans, this is ridiculous. Censure the president and move on. And so it was this big petition with like a half million people on the list and nothing like that had ever happened before. And then they used that list to raise money for candidates, also something that had never happened before. They they invented this model of of fundraising electronically from an email list. And it, it like, you know, it broke all the ways of thinking about campaign finance and campaign finance law, which we maybe we could get back to that because it's very significant. And anyways, Wes and Joan were just like really amazing people, amazing managers, and super nice and caring, wonderful people. It was just this really great environment. Part of what made it amazing was actually a guy who you know, who maybe you've had on the show named Patrick Kane. I have had and, him, yes. Okay, yeah. We so, also walk dogs. Yes, <laughs> right. Yeah, we also walk dogs was the name of his company, but it was just him back then. And he actually did like bank security stuff. So there there would be like weeks when he was unreachable because he was just a contractor with us, but he was our programmer. I'm not filling in the blanks, right? Uh, he was our programmer who built the software that we used to run campaigns. So, and I'm an, I was an extremely amateur programmer and now even more amateur. So I really struggled to like actually build stuff that worked. So even though I was building my own tools before this, 
and I really enjoyed doing that. But like Patrick was was really a master at this, and, and it was hard to build this stuff in the early days of of the internet. But that was also an advantage because there were no products back then to do mass email, to do a distributed events. There were no products at all to do any of this stuff. I mean, maybe there was a mass email product. There were some, but maybe they didn't come to the attention and maybe they weren't that good yet. And maybe they weren't very customized to what you needed to do. But uh, yeah, but yeah. there but there definitely weren't any. Because uh, like CTSG had something. I know that there were some things going okay, around, yes. but, but yeah, yeah. I, I take your uh, point. But I don't think there were event tools, right? Where in 2002 and three, where people could schedule their own events and, and like where you could have a big nationally distributed event type thing, right? It seems like that kind of thing has been invented and invented and invented over and over. And maybe, you know, maybe to mobilize and some of the more recent things, but yeah. Well, in, in any case, in this moment, there weren't products where that were good enough that we kind of had to use them, right? And and at least we certainly didn't know about them. So the benefit of this was that we had a programmer, Patrick Kane, who was building the the tools himself. And so we weren't confined by the setup of the online products, right? Like this one simple thing, like of like like trying to have one event per city. You know, like I had done with that thing in in 2000, there was some moment when we wanted to do that again, you know, like let's choose one thing. And we were able to do it because it's not that hard of a thing to build. So I don't know if any of the event tools today have an ability for for like users to come to an agreement on a place and have there be one place. But when I was doing this stuff for, you know, all those years up until the Bernie campaign, this never emerged in any of the tools, you know, and I could never understand why, because it's such a powerful thing, you know, to have like one big protest in each city. And um, so anyways, we weren't confined by software. We just had these Perl scripts. Did you build stuff in Perl back then? And I didn't, but I uh, knew plenty of people building stuff in Perl. Yeah. Yeah. It was very cool. It was really like a predecessor to, I mean, maybe this is totally wrong, but to me, it seems like it was kind of a predecessor to like React, you know, like the way React works today. You know, the code and the HTML, the way they kind of interacted with each other in these scripts was very kind of similar in a way. When we wanted to do a new campaign at Move On, um, we, the staff, would, Patrick showed us how to do it. You know, we would go into the directory and we would copy the folder of code. And, and then we would go in and modify all the pages and basically do what we thought the UI should should kind of look like. And then Patrick would start modifying the code to go with it. Having that kind of flexibility, that allowed us to, like when something really big would happen in the news cycle, because a lot of this was around the run-up to the Iraq war. So there'd be some big development, or we would just have a really good idea. And we would think up a campaign, and we would code it that night, and then we would send the email out in the morning. And so we were able to act immediately on the thing, you know, and it's so rare that that organizations today, I think, are able to do that kind of thing. And it's not at all just because of software. It's also because they have lawyers and they have a bunch of departments, you know, that all have different priorities. And so they have to have meetings. And I've been a consultant, you know, over the years to a bunch of big, really wonderful humanitarian and um, advocacy organizations. 
But it was always heartbreaking over and over and over when there'd be some amazing story that they could act on in the media. But by the time they got through with all of their meetings, nobody could remember what the story was. So we were not constrained in any of those ways. And that was one of the things that made it really amazing to work there when I was there. One of the big campaigns was an try to keep us out of the Iraq war campaign, right? Yeah, that, that was, I don't know, for how long, for a couple of years, that was, that was like the campaign. And then within that campaign, we did a whole bunch of little campaigns and, you know, just constantly trying to show that most people did not want to go to war and to put pressure, you know, to organize pressure against the members of Congress. And for me, it was really, so, you know, so like there were just a whole bunch of different things. Sometimes it would just be a petition, you know, and petitions kept building the list, but then we would do things using that list to get people mobilized in ways that would make an even bigger impact. And, you know, so like one day we had a candlelight vigil and there was, I don't know, I forget how many thousands of these events happened all over the country and and this was just when it started to become possible to like upload photos kind of in a you know in a not really incredibly difficult way and so there was no tool to do it we just had it like on our website you know and so people were uploading photos so we had this like beautiful site with like thousands of pictures of all of these events with hundreds or thousands of people with their candles and all these events were organized using this like team organizing software that we built custom for that event, but that was, you know, based on earlier events. And so, you know, there were multiple roles. I used to do a presentation on this kind of organizing that we did there uh, a lot. There were multiple roles that we would create and somebody would have to play each one of those roles for each one of those events. And it was very similar to programming, actually. It was like recursive programming. That should be the title of a book, recursive organizing, you know, because we had this one model for an event. And we had tools that would support any group of people to do that event. And as long as we designed that right, we didn't have to manage. And you might be noticing some similarity here between this experience and my union organizing experience, because we were empowering. But the thing is, I didn't bring this to move on. Maybe, hopefully, I helped it to succeed You know, with experiences I had. But the amazing thing to me was that like Wes and Joan and also Eli Parisher, who was there at the time, who's went on to do many big, great things and who was only like 19 at the time, they really got this. They were so not from the left, any of those three. They were not infected by all of this patronizing thinking that a lot of people in the progressive world and the Democratic Party and the left have towards ordinary people or working class people or like non-political, politicized people, you know? And so they just thought it was very natural that you could have random people sign up for these leadership roles and carry out these events well. They just thought that was normal. And so we did things like the candlelight vigil. We had these lobbying meetings where almost every single member of Congress and every single senator would be faced with a meeting with like 30 or 40 people from their district. And these meetings would be scheduled and led by a team that we never spoke to. We provided them a structure. We provided them some tools. We gave them, there was some old tool that you could just create a link, randomly generate a link, and it would give a group of people a discussion thread. I don't know why this tool doesn't still exist because it's amazing. You just send a link with a random hash code 
to five people and they click on it and they're there talking to each other in this thread on the web. And all they have to do is keep that link. So they would organize, they would read the guide that we wrote. Eli Parisher was really amazing at writing these organizing guides. I was really terrible at writing them. And there were ground rules, there was a structure. So all these huge things happened. And so we did those campaigns, yeah, all through that Iraq war period. And then I went to work for the Kerry campaign. I took a brief visit to the Dean campaign, and then I went to the Kerry campaign, but move on, continue to do all this stuff through that presidential election. I kind of started to think of you as like the Zelig of... Uh, some of our <laughs> political history here because, you know, because, yeah, Dean, Kerry, and then on to lots of others beyond that. And your handprints are kind of there, not as the overlord, but as a participant uh, along but the way. What's sad, in reality, nobody makes the documentary about Zelig. That's why all I have is that is the video by the right-wing conspiracy theorist. Oh, you, you, uh, you're you're going to have this, you know. <laughs> this excellent podcast interview. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> the Dean campaign was one of the inflection points, inarguably, in online campaigning. I've talked to tons of people about it that were part of it, ranging from Nick O'Mealy to Ben Self to Stephanie Shriok and Bobby Clark and and Howard Dean himself and, and, and Zephyr Teachout and Joe Rosebars. I yeah. haven't talked to either of them, but lots of okay. them. Lots yeah. of people. But it's it's like one of those shows where like all the actors go on to be like super famous, but nobody ever watched the show. Yeah. It's kind of fascinating to me. Clearly, he by being anti-war and being kind of more or less alone in that position early in the Democratic Party among big elected officials, he was the governor of Vermont. Um, you know, he set himself apart and he attracted a lot of activist attention. How long were you there and what did you personally do in that campaign? I was literally only up there on site on the campaign for like several weeks in a couple of different periods very early on. And uh, when, when I got there, Nico Mele was there sitting at the computer being the webmaster. Back then we had webmasters and Zephyr Teachout was there playing sort of an organizer role, right? And and nobody knew how to do any of this stuff back then, you know? And it wasn't intuitive. Like, I would not have known how to deal with an email list if I had not worked at MoveOn. Because, like, I had my gwbush.com email list, and I really wasted it. I could have done amazing things with it, but I just had no idea what to do with that list other than send them a, a, some new bumper sticker designs every time my bank account ran low. Interesting side note, the reason why Move On was great at this email thing was because Wes and Joan had been direct marketers because they owned a software company where they sold boxes at, what was the software store back then? I forget what it was called. Computer World or something? Computer or, Land was one of them. Yeah, Computer I, Land, right. Yeah. yeah, so they were like selling boxes of software at Computer Land and, and then, you know, getting warranty cards sent in or whatever and or registration cards and then sending mail to people telling them, go buy our next product. So they, they understood this very intuitively, the same way a lot of direct mail people did in politics. On the Kerry campaign, we crossed the streams, you know, between these two worlds, between direct mail and digital because we got, because uh, we were working with Frank O'Brien who's this direct mail master, you know, who did the DNC's direct mail for years and years and has done every big organizations and every big candidate's direct mail at one point or another. He was this brilliant writer and marketer. 
And so he was able to dial in immediately, you know, like what this medium could do. So we learned a lot from him too, but that was later in the Kerry campaign. But like when I got to the Dean campaign, I mean, this is no, no disrespect and I don't think she would take it this way at all. Zephyr Teachout, who's a brilliant organizer and an amazing person and really wonderful. She was like sending out like eight random things a day to the Dean email list. Like uh, we just hired a new assistant finance officer, you know, here's their resume, just like random, like press releases, you know, all the press releases that the campaign made went out to the entire list. So they were just burning this list down. It's interesting because there are some moments and certain technologies and certain developments that do get adopted, that do spread like Newton's laws of motion, like making real cash money from an email list is it's, it's, it's like discovering the laws of motion. Like once a campaign sees how that works it's really easy for people to get good at it and to dial into the techniques and the tools. I basically brought that practice from Move On to the Dean campaign. And as far as I know, I think that it was the first time that any campaign ever did email fundraising and organizing in any kind of a disciplined way. And, you know, and then, and I was only there a very short time and just like helped them get started. And then a whole bunch of people came later who picked it up and just saw it in action and became some of the best email marketers in the world. Um, and of course started, you know, businesses that have all sold many times over for many, many millions of dollars since then. But then we also did organizing. We exported the move on event tool to the Dean campaign. And basically they, the Dean campaign hired Patrick Kane to build the event tool and he owned all the software so he could reuse that software for the Dean campaign. Now I'm going to tease some people a little bit, but you know, in, in their infinite wisdom, the, the people who would become blue state decided to scrap all that and rebuild it in PHP because they only could deal with PHP. So, uh, and now I'm going to have all the PHP people mad at me too, if they listen to this, are there still PHP dogmatists out there? Uh, people in the Drupal world, I think is a okay. lot where you see that. Yeah. So I'll get some heat mail from them. So they rebuilt that, they, they rebuilt that event tool, you know, and, and other tools. And then that became Blue State. What's the product call again? I always knew it by the name of the company. So I guess it was just Blue State. Yeah. Ironically, those technologies for Patrick was Action Kit for Blue State. They all later got bought by the company <laughs> formerly known as NGP. Down yes. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. Which is, uh, which, yeah. Which for, and for better or for worse. Well, you know, I, yeah, <laughs> no, I hear good things. I hear like, it, I hear it's working out overall. So I think it's good. So I don't know, maybe I'm rambling too much here, but yeah. So a lot of practices got, got picked up and practiced on the Dean campaign that were really successful. So Dean was this phenomenon online and electorally for a while until, Various mishaps happened that we <laughs> that we'll remember in in Iowa and and New Hampshire and beyond. And Kerry sort of secured the nomination in a kind of a style that happens where just like Biden, exactly like Biden winning, yeah. Just like suddenly everybody's like too impatient to go anywhere else. Okay, <laughs> we got to pick this guy. Uh, he seems right. good enough. We need to win. Let's take him. And you end up over there. Kerry raised $250 million total when he was expected to raise a small fraction of that. The way I remember it, it was, uh, you know, they were, everybody was talking about the internet campaign all the time just because the amount of money was huge. The people showing up at events was huge. Everybody was getting these emails. It is true, actually, that 
we did make an effort. So I'll grant you this. We, we did actually, the whole campaign, and I was a believer in this approach at the time, uh, that we, we made an effort to not make it like about the internet. You know, we didn't want to have a bunch of internet process stories, but there were a lot of internet process stories anyways. But, and that was kind of in reaction to the Dean campaign. Because when Dean blew up with this scream, you know, and he didn't, I, he didn't, he was going to lose anyways. It wasn't because of the scream. You know, the reason he was screaming is because he came in fourth in Iowa, right? So, and why did he come in fourth in Iowa? Because they just ran a terrible campaign in Iowa. And the whole campaign was kind of a mess. With the Kerry campaign, it's like, we're going to run a serious campaign here. But the other thing that happened was when Dean was on the rise, and we should explain this for the people who don't remember, because a lot, you know, this is really ancient history we're talking about. Normally, the way a Democratic primary went was... Somebody would come along and raise a ton of money. Sometimes a couple of people would raise a ton of money. And whoever could raise the most money would basically win. Sometimes the second most money person would start to win. You know, Then they'd start raising way more money. But it was really all about the money. And the amount of money that they raised, I think if you look up like how much Gore raised in the primary, it was a very small amount of money. And if you go back to you know the Clinton campaigns, it was really, really tiny amount of money. So when John Kerry and John Edwards came out and they raised $7 million uh, this one quarter, it like completely blew everybody's minds. They were just like, oh my God, that's so much money. So there was no way to beat that. But then Dean, who nobody had ever heard of, this guy from completely out of nowhere, who was weird also, he wound up raising way, 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 way more, like many times more money than like Carrie and Edwards combined. And so this was this thing where the establishment was defeated by this total outsider using the rules of the establishment. Dean, he didn't win, but it looked like he was going to win right up until Iowa. It looked like he was going to easily win by raising way more money and building a way bigger, more sort of professional looking campaign if you looked at it from a great distance. So it really looked like suddenly somebody who was an insurgent who like really stood up for the values of, you know, most democratic voters and you know was kind of a populist could win. Now, my first thought was fuck some fascist is going to come along and use this technology, you know, so we better develop it really, really well, because if we don't do a good job with this, like somebody really evil is going to rise up and use this technology. Okay, that was a cor correct, accurate prediction. But so, so it was amazing when Dean was, was almost about to win and people were making fun of Kerry and Dean was just like punking Kerry. And this was all Joe Trippi's brilliance, right? Joe Trippi was the campaign manager played by Jonah Hill in the movie about Gary Hart that would be such an amazing achievement in life to be in a movie and be played by somebody like Jonah Hill. So, you know, from your like teenage years, you know, when your career was starting, how cool. Anyways, Joe Trippy was just a master at punking the Kerry campaign. And so he kept getting these process stories about the internet, how Dean had like 10,000 meetings across the country and Kerry had one, you know, <laughs> and, um, and that kind of you guys were using Meetup at the time, I remember. This is a very interesting story, actually, because we initially were using the 
Patrick's tool, right? And we were able to organize and some some of the dean people listening to this, if they listen to it, are going to roll their eyes. They're going to be like, hey, can't believe Zach is still talking about this. We initially were using this custom event tool on our on the dean website that we controlled. And we were organizing many thousands of events all over the place. And it was really cool. It was also very chaotic. The problem with Meetup was Meetup's business model at that time and I love Scott Heiferman. And we met actually when at Move On, when we were organizing these events, we were calling them meetups. And then this guy from a company called Meetup calls us and says, Hey, I'm my company's called Meetup. Can you guys not call your meetups meetups? And I was like, What? We're not going to change the name of our events. But then I was talked into changing the names. And so we didn't call them meetups anymore. But their business model at the time was they signed up bars. And so the only venues available to do a meetup in were bars that were on the list. And they were these like big bars, you know, and the bars would pay meetup and the bars would get money from all these people coming in. Right. So there were only like two venues and they were like in, in every city and they were really loud bars where it was just like terrible to try to organize. And also we couldn't control anything about the events. So meetup had a system where meetup would say who the, leader of the event would be. And it was anybody that wanted to be a leader. So there'd be like 10 leaders that would show up to the event and they would all be like, we're all the leaders. And then so many of these Dean meetups would just be these 10 people fighting with each other. And Michael Silberman, who is another great, you know, storied legend in this field was like, he was 19 at the time or something. I actually put him in charge of calling all of these meetups and trying to get through to the leaders to like create some order at these events. And he did an amazing job and it actually worked for a little while. There was kind of structure at at these meetup events. This is an interesting twist. The reason why Joe Trippi, the campaign manager, was adamant about using meetup was that it was an independently verifiable number. So even though the homegrown tool was way better, more flexible, and you could do really great organizing, and and this is definitely an error that I've made a lot in my career. Sometimes I've been so committed to achieving like a particular goal, like let's get the maximum number of people knocking on doors or doing these events, and I miss what actually matters in a campaign, which is what Trippy really intuitively understood, which is the national media. So the national media could do a story that says, the Dean campaign has 500 meetups and the Kerry campaign has one meetup. And then Trippy would send the reporters to like the best meetups and we'd make sure that they were going to be amazing. And they'd walk in and it'd be this amazing thing, all coordinated, everybody cheering and these great leaders. And then they'd go to the Kerry meetup, which the Kerry campaign did not even know was happening. This was all during the primary. It would be just like three people, you know. This helped create this national narrative that the Kerry campaign was was dead and nobody cared about Kerry and that Dean was winning. Even though we could have mobilized a lot more people, you know, using our homegrown tool. There was a Twitter predecessor back then called UPOC, I think. And so Trippy got all these people involved in this texting thing. And so our numbers on UPOC, we had like 10,000 people on UPOC with all talking in like 20 different channels. And Carrie had three people on, and Carrie probably didn't even have anybody on UPOC, but Trippy probably just told the press, Carrie has three, you know? <laughs> and so, so then that's the story. And then fundraising, of course, was the same thing. It's an independently verifiable number. Another thing that's kind of interesting is over and over, we have 
a candidate who captures the imagination of a certain subset of the population, usually an activist subset. And that maybe that was Dean and maybe that was Obama. Maybe that was Sanders, you know, over time. And there's a lot of energy that's visible. And a lot of that has to do with the interplay between the people doing the organizing and the kind of actual feelings out there in the electorate working together. But it, it doesn't always represent the center of gravity or the strongest political preferences in a actual election. Right. It, it almost never does. And it's the national media that the national political media that makes it they create the illusion that this little tiny movement is actually huge and is the mainstream. And now I'll caveat this, though, because in the case of the Dean campaign, I think Dean actually did represent the vast majority of Democratic voters. The trick to understanding Dean is that he was not a progressive. He was not a lefty at all. If you look at him today, you know, he's a total conservative. He's like a, a lobbyist. He's right in the establishment, to be honest. Yeah, he's yeah, he's a lobby he's a lobbyist for like health insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies and stuff and supported Clinton in the 2016 election and everything. His positions haven't changed on anything. He his positions were so mainstream and normal. The the thing is that the Democratic Party had lost its way so fundamentally that it was considering supporting the war in Iraq and kind of did, didn't really oppose it the second war when they wouldn't ever dare to think about something like Medicare for all. And I think Dean was the first one to really popularize Medicare for all. And Dean was embracing civil unions for gay couples, not even gay marriage, but this was before anybody in the establishment was talking about gay marriage, but also really common sense, really basic, not radical stuff. And that was part of his appeal. Like, like the kind of people that really got excited about Dean it took me a minute back then to realize that they weren't progressives. Like Marcos, you know, from the Daily Coast, for example, he, he was a total mainstream centrist, you know. The people that really mobilized around Dean were just like, come on, does the Democratic Party have to be so stupid? Does it just really want to lose? I think his anti-war position made a lot of people think he was further to the left than he was because it it separated him from people in the Senate who voted to authorize the war. Yeah, but so my job at Move On was actually, I started on January 1st, 2003. And, and this was when the heat was starting to get turned up on the senators and the Congress people. And Wes said, do you want to move to DC and be our DC person? So I was the DC person. I was the only person at Move On at DC when when Move On had just raised like tens of millions of dollars for all these candidates. And I was 33 years old and intellectually and or at least emotionally, I was more like 23, a little bit of a late bloomer. And yet I was getting called by senators' offices and I was having breakfast and lunch and dinner with senators. And they were looking to me, they had this terrified face and they were like, literally saying, I know that this war is wrong and I know this is really stupid and we shouldn't do this. But my colleagues opposed the first Gulf War and we really paid for that. And we were really unpopular because the war was so popular. And I was like, okay, but like, you're still sitting here. 
And you know, this is really stupid. They're going to go for regime change. We're going to break and then own this country. And it's going to be horrible. And so many hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people are going to die. And you're just worried that your next election is going to be a little harder. Like these were Democratic senators in perfectly safe seats, you know? So that was really disappointing and eye-opening. I don't think Dean looked to the left. I think that's what was so frustrating, actually, when he started winning. There were some establishment figures that would that were like screaming and yelling in my face in meetings. At Move On, we were perceived to have really helped Dean in some unfair way. And we did help Dean, but it was in a very fair way. We just asked our members to donate to whatever campaign they wanted to, and most of them wanted to donate to Dean. They, they were just like screaming, you know, and you only get that mad, you know, when somebody's only a little different from you. It's like how two different kinds of Trotskyists, like nobody hates each other more than like two slightly different kinds of Trotskyists. There's a great parody of that in one of the Monty Python movies. Yes. Life of Brian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the popular front versus of the- Judea. Yeah. Exactly. Versus the the people's front of Judea. Or something yeah. like that. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And they were just so mad because like Dean jumped the line and did it in a very clever way that they should have been smart enough to do. One question I have is, so you're coming out of the labor movement, out of move on, kind of, I'm, ass- I'm assuming kind of on the left, pretty more so than Kerry and Dean at this point. How did you feel kind of personally ideologically being parts of those efforts? Well, the thing is, I wasn't, I was a weird kind of lefty and like, I didn't finish my China story. I should actually wrap that up very quickly. Otherwise my right-wing trolls are going to have too much material in favor of me being a Chinese communist. But the thing that made me not want to turn into a communist was that, because also people were pretty happy in China at that time, speaking very freely about whatever they wanted to and that was just like the feel on the street. Of course, there was there was all kinds of bad stuff happening on the margins. But um, but like but the thing that made me not the thing that made me not that kind of lefty was you know that made me not want to join a Trotskyist party or something is that they opened the first department stores when I was in China. The very first department store in Xi'an opened up the year I was there in eighty seven, and there was like three thousand people outside. And these are people that literally had never seen an advertisement in their life. They had never seen anybody wearing fancy clothes in their life. They'd almost never watched any kind of TV in their life. And, but they just knew that they wanted this stuff that was in this department store so bad. And they went in there and they were instantly entranced and the whole country was entranced by this dream of being able to buy this stupid little shit. There was an aspect of utopia at this college, at this university campus, where the janitors sat right next to the nationally renowned physicists at night, and they would smoke and drink, and their kids would play inside this big, giant square of chairs, and everybody was equal. And they were so chill, and they didn't have to work long hours, and they were going to be secure for the rest of their lives. The whole country enthusiastically threw that away. They threw their healthcare system out the door. They threw their education system out the door. People didn't have access to healthcare, didn't have access to education unless they were rich. Why did they do that? So that's why I initially became this like crabby libertarian. It sounds like you're lamenting the 
the passing of communism there, the good aspects of communism there. Well, yeah, they in China, they lament the the passing of the good aspects of communism, you know, just in the exact same way as in the US, um, you know, some people who are old enough remember the good old days when like small town America might be sort of equal for white people, you know, and they remember that time, not really equal, but, you know, more equal, you know, and there's definitely something good about having an education system that educates everybody and a healthcare system that takes care of everybody. And they threw that away just so that each person could have some chance of becoming rich. When I was at university, there were a lot of like communist sort of lefties, but I also was like working at the vegetarian co-op and it was like really awful. Co-ops are awful in my experience, <laughs> you know, because you're supposed to sit around and debate your schedule for the next day. Like, no, somebody just make up the fucking schedule. You know, most of my like kind of fundamental values are, I think we should be able to build a, a society that works where everybody gets a good education. Everybody has access to healthcare. Everybody has a good wage. That's really possible. And that has been achieved under communism and under capitalism. It's been achieved under like socialist authoritarian politics and communist authoritarian politics. And it's been achieved under like really good, fair liberal democracies. It is a very long way of answering that I was equally uncomfortable among socialists as I was among Democrats. Because the real answer to how we achieve those things is we just have to invest in the fucking economy. We just have to have investment in building up our means of making a living because people have to make a living. And so if we build up our means of making a living in every community all across the country so that there's enough of it for everybody, all of our major problems are going to go away because communities are going to have the resources to build good schools and we're going to have the resources to provide good health care and all that stuff. During my whole life, up until just a few years ago, nobody in the Democratic Party was willing to talk about that. And nobody in the communist or socialist parties that lay around across the country were willing to talk about that or wanted to talk about that. Now, everybody wants to talk about it, which is great. It's just kind of like, where have you guys been all my life? You know, <laughs> I'm curious, how are you feeling after the very close 2004 election loss? Uh, it was weird. That was a really weird time because that campaign was kind of so poorly run in a lot of different ways. We really thought we were going to win. I remember a few days before the election, Stan Greenberg was in the office telling everybody, we've got this wrapped up. So there's one sign of a bad campaign, right? Is <laughs> But there was a whole bunch of stuff wrong with that campaign all over the place. And so I was like, man, if the Democrats win this, it's going to be so depressing because they're not going to fix any of this stuff and they're just going to keep running campaigns like this. And I don't know, something in me just was feeling very negative, right? But at the same time, the whole reason I was excited about working on the 2004 campaign was that I thought it would be amazing if we could defeat Bush in, in addition to just defeating this bad president. There was Bush one who started a war in Iraq and thought this was a great way to stay in office and everything, and then was defeated after his first term. So I thought, this would be great. If a, if a second Bush starts a second war in Iraq and is defeated, then 
we go back to Vietnam War syndrome, you know, where the U.S. is afraid to get into wars and presidents won't start wars. There'll be a new rule, you know, instead of if I want to win a second term, let me do a little war. So this would be an amazing precedent to set. So I was really disappointed for a whole bunch of reasons that we didn't win. It would have been way, way better for millions and millions of people if uh, if Kerry had won. And I was actually in Ohio, which was like ground zero for the campaign, where it was this very narrow loss. That's a place where if if way better organizing had happened on the ground, it might have made a difference. But I, I don't think that's the decisive factor. I'll tell you a story from 2004 from the Kerry campaign headquarters. There was the war room, you know, where... There were TV screens, you know, all around every single channel coming in from all over the country. And there was the whole swift boat thing, right? Uh, And where Bush was just attacking and the Republicans were just attacking Kerry on this completely absurd basis. This is like one of these steps forward in just like the total utter shamelessness of the Republican Party. And this draft dodger, Bush... His campaign was attacking John Kerry, who actually went and fought for being a coward, right? And and all this stuff. And so we kept wanting to respond. The campaign had this policy of not responding. But on the internet team, we were emailing many millions of people and all this stuff. And we were like, come on, like, let us talk about this. Let us generate some news as some kind of a response. And I remember one time we were up in the war room and we were begging these communications people And they were like, it's not even showing up in the polls out in the Midwest. Don't worry about it. And on every single one of the TV screens was the Swift Boat story. And the Kerry campaign was talking about like um, they were going to win this campaign on issues like stem cell research because research showed that 51% of the public supported more research on stem cells. And this was a wedge issue because the Republicans opposed it because stem cells sometimes come from fetuses, right? So they're like, this is how we're going to win. We're going to really push hard on stem cells. And they would talk about this. The top communications people would talk about this in these meetings with, you know, all the top staff and everything. So so that that's why it, I just had these weird, weird feelings. And I actually spent the last few months of the campaign traveling all around the country troubleshooting stuff in the organizing program and the way that our internet stuff was interfacing with the organizing on the ground. What was fascinating to see was just what a shit show everything was. It was the first campaign where hundreds of millions of dollars were being spent, you know, not a hundred million dollars like in the previous cycle. It was just like all this money, all this effort wasted and all these emotions. You know, it was very hard for me to kind of process. I was driving back from Ohio back to DC the day after and Kerry didn't concede until the day after the election. And, you know, Kerry had been basically a robot for the entire campaign. And then, and this always happens, uh, not always, but but often (laughs) with these Democratic candidates, um, he gave this uh, concession speech and and then he was like a real human being, you know, and then he was like talking to the staff, all the thousands of people that were working on his campaign. And he was so human and so personal, you know, he even talked about some of the, you know, things that he was fighting for in the campaign and what was at stake. And I was just like, man, why couldn't you be this person during the campaign? That happens a lot. You know, that was the case with Gore as well, of course. 
Afterwards, I just kind of felt, you know, you just kind of feel shattered after a losing campaign, after a losing campaign that that's, that's, that's that big. And, you know, and interestingly too, there's so much at stake personally for everybody who was involved. Cause you know, the people that worked on anybody that's worked on a winning presidential campaign, especially the first victory and not a midterm victory, like they're just set for life. Every now and then I'll, I'll wind up at some party in New York or something and it, and it'll be like some random guy that worked on the Obama campaign at some incredibly low level. And it's like a million dollar apartment, you know, or I guess like a $5 million apartment, you know? And I was like, what do you do? It's like, Oh, I, I consult with all these organizations and everything. I'm like, yeah, I consult with organizations too, you know? <laughs> so, but if you win, you know, you're just golden. If you're, if you work on one of those winning cycles, you're golden for the entire rest of your life. There's this lottery aspect to it. So, you know, I remember just getting back to DC and getting together with all the people from the campaign and everybody just being just sort of so exhausted and depressed. So, yeah. So what was next for you? You went to England, right? Oh, yeah, because the Labour Party in the UK, they come over to the, the, the Labour Party leadership always comes over, you know, they have close ties with the Democratic Party. And so they were coming over trying to learn about this internet thing. And they, I met with them on the day at the convention that we happened to raise like $12 million in one day because it was the day that Kerry made his speech. And this was like a huge record at the time. In the UK, each party at that time was spending about 12 or $15 million for the whole campaign cycle. So they were like, you have to come work for us. You have to do this for us. And I said, there's one problem. And this was going to be Tony Blair's like third election. Everybody, including your supporters, hates Tony Blair. And also... They, they know that Tony Blair is going to win because the conservatives were just so unpopular and Michael Howard, the, the conservative leader, was just so ridiculous. So they, they don't have any incentive to give. The whole way this internet thing works is you have somebody who might win, but they might not. That's why you have to donate. And you love the person. You would be so excited if they won, right? Or you love the cause. Like in the case of Carrie, Carrie's donors weren't, so excited about Kerry, but they were really excited about defeating Bush, right? And so, um, and so, you know, so it was it was exactly the wrong formula. Uh, I, and so I told them they weren't going to raise any money on the internet, but they were like, "We don't care. We need to do this thing, and this is the new state of the art. And we need to figure out how to do this. You need to come over." So I went over because I thought it would be really interesting, and of course it was. And I got to sit there at the campaign table every morning and every night with. Tony Blair and Alistair Campbell and Philip Gould and, you know, all these other characters who pulled off the whole new labor revolution. And it was really interesting. And, you know, and I, I was not a fan of Tony Blair or labor at that time because they really enabled Bush to go to war in Iraq. Like the whole Iraq war might not have happened if Tony Blair said, you've got to be kidding. Um, and I kind of wanted to understand like why, somebody like Blair would do something like that. It was very interesting. Yeah, it sounds like it. You spent a whole bunch of years after that fundraising through OMP. What was OMP and how was that? So Frank O'Brien was the principal guy at OMP. 
OMP was a big direct mail firm. And like I was saying earlier, um, you know, we on the internet team at Cary, we got to know Frank and he would come in and help us write emails at night. And, and he had, he had known John Kerry forever. Like he worked on Kerry. He, Frank O'Brien's a Boston guy with an amazing working class Boston accent, you know, and he got to know John Kerry on John Kerry's very first congressional campaign. He'd been writing in Kerry's voice for decades. So that, so that was like a great collaboration. And I really loved Frank. He's just an amazing guy and uh, really wonderful. And so he had all these big clients uh, big humanitarian and advocacy organizations. Hillary Clinton was a was a client, and she was obviously preparing to run for president and everything. So I basically just pitched Frank on, hey, how about if I come work for you and advise your clients about how to do this digital thing? And really what I wanted to do was work on figuring out how we could have the political revolution, as Bernie would say. And so I basically worked half-time at OMP, and I would attend, you know, I'd, I'd jump into meetings and advise. And most of the OMP clients were working with a digital firm. So I was just kind of sprinkling some, you know, uh, hopefully wisdom on top of campaigns that everybody was working on and everything. And I got to learn a lot about direct mail. It was a really good gig. But during that time, I was doing all kinds of other stuff. One of those other stuffs was uh, the new organizing institute. Yes, that's right. After the 2004 cycle, there was this feeling among all the people that were doing internet fundraising and organizing that we should have some kind of a training program because it was just really hard to find staff to do this stuff. Because back then, you know, you just could not find somebody with experience in sending out fundraising emails or doing any, any kind of organizing. I organized uh, like a convening where we got all these people from all different um, companies and organizations. We had this initial gathering and the group was like, we need a training program. Somebody needs to start it. And so uh, since I and Judith Freeman, we were the two people stupid enough to not be starting companies in that moment, because basically everybody who started a company in that moment has millions of dollars in their bank accounts now. But we were like, why would we start a business? And so we said, we'll do it. We'll start the training program. And so that's what we did. I was actively involved for the first couple of years. And then Judith really took over and turned it into a real professional organization. And it went on for a bunch of years. And the real exciting moment with the NOI was when the campaigns that were getting together for 2008 no, I guess it was 2007. And the the staff from the Obama campaign, from the Clinton campaign, and they were rec recruiting their staff, you know, from our cohort of trainees that, you know, we would do these really intensive trainings that would go on for 10 days and everything. It was very much based actually on that AFL-CIO organizing institute that I talked about earlier, the structure and a whole bunch of our trainees from th those years you know, wound up being major leaders on the Obama campaign and went on to do a lot of big, huge things. And we also did a thing called Roots Camp, which had a big impact for a while. And that came out of, I, I attended some of Tim O'Reilly's Foo Camps. And uh, this is a, a Silicon Valley tradition that's been going on for a long time. And 
all the these big interesting people from the tech world get together and share all the new stuff they're working on and uh and it's it's organized in a very specific way that makes like maximum sharing happen and that just keeps everything moving very quickly and there's no bureaucracy and no setup so we started doing that we did that with uh, with roots camp and that became a place through the NOI where a lot of people would come and share and learn and I met so many people there who are doing, you know, big, huge stuff in politics today. So, yeah. So the OI, the NOI was an interesting experience. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to who went through NOI training or who talk about how the absence of that, since it uh, ended its run, has left a big gap in the political ecosystem. Huh. Well... Ultimately, the reason it died was because people uh, like donors just were not willing to support it. I was really not involved in the last years of the NOI at all, but I had gotten off the board and was was not engaged at all. But, you know, as with anything in politics in D.C., there's always a little bit of drama. But none of that drama would have been there if like if the donors had, you know, just given it some consistent support. On the Democratic side, the pattern for donors is they get really freaked out a few months before the election and they just start throwing hundreds of millions of dollars in all directions. And there's another pattern, which is that they fund to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars, like some really big, giant bureaucratic projects. And then when things don't go so well in a cycle, like they they then decide they're not going to fund anything for, for the next couple of cycles. Like America coming together or something. In 2004, there was, was it America? What yeah. was it? That's a lot. It was uh, a, big, a big, huge separate yeah. field operation of some sort. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because I worked at Move On in 2003 and four, and we were like the star children of, of politics, you know, and everybody was so excited about Move On. And so, uh, so all through 2003 and 2004, and I was in all these rooms with all these billionaires. And of course, I was so bad at, um, and so had so little foresight and really did not understand the situation I was in. So I really should have worked those rooms a little better. But I was just sort of so disgusted by the, the just misguidedness of it all, you know, and the just the wackiness of it all you know, that I utterly failed to develop any long lasting relationships. And I'm just sort of incapable of like the bullshit that you need to do to do that stuff. But the problem was, is that then in 2005, like when I was trying to hit up some of these donors for, uh, for funds for NOI, some of the people that worked with these billionaires or the billionaires themselves were just like, yeah, you know, we just don't like how it went this time with Kerry losing, and we just don't think we're going to do much in politics anymore. And of course, they all jumped in again a few months before the next election, launched a whole new round of big, giant, disastrous efforts, right? So when those people are crying about how the NOI doesn't exist and other institutions that should exist, this is the reason and tell them they need to fork it over and just provide some consistent low-level support for stuff like that. One thing that I've heard even co-founders of organizations that you were very important in getting going is that you are better at the launch and the beginning than 
the execution and sort of staying with that organization and keeping it going. Do you think that's an accurate take on on Zach Exley and his political entrepreneurship? Uh, yeah, and but I, you know, you know, founders' disease, right? Where the founder starts something, the founder was good at starting the thing, yeah, and then they stick around and like make everything awful. You, and you don't have it. that. Yeah, I don't have that disease. Yeah. And so so everybody wins. <laughs> There's something that you have to do when you start a new thing, which is you have to push through all the hesitations that everybody has because you're doing something new, right? So whenever you do anything new... There's all this resistance and everybody's like, what, what are you doing? No, 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 it's not going to work. And so you just push, 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 push. Do you, do you lose interest after a while? Do you have another idea that gets you excited? What is it about that entrepreneurial impulse that you have? How would you characterize it? Well, I mean, hopefully I'm different now, actually, because, you know, it takes a lot out of you to just to to start that, you know, to start the new thing. Everybody's upset because you changed things. You moved the cheese, you know, and and that's actually like a, a good reason to step out of a thing once you've started it often is that all the people that are angry with you for starting the thing, you when you're then out, they can't like punish the organization for you anymore, you know? So then the new people that take over, can be like, I'm so sorry about that asshole who like moved your cheese and like stole your market share, but you know, let's work together now. At some point I realized that, that actually like I was just kind of torturing myself over and over again because all of that emotional friction, it really takes a toll. So I don't know if I'm ever going to do that again. Another reason why I couldn't stay and keep running things was that like I would just literally go crazy on the conference calls and in the meetings because there's so much bullshit. There's this play acting. Everybody knows that the thing is going to happen or that it's not going to happen. But you have to have a whole series of like kabuki theater meetings to get to that result. So I would make the mistake of being like, guys, like we know what's going to happen we know that we're going to do this. So like, let's just do it. And everybody's like, no, no, we have to go through the steps. And I just can't do that. Like I literally can't do it. Is it a problem with patience, basically? I don't really know. But later I wound up going to work for Wikipedia, you know, where I was in, I was like, this was my one very corporate and you know, C-suite job. I was the chief community officer and also the chief revenue officer. And I had to sit in these meetings with the C team. And there were a lot of great people on that team. But we had these problems at Wikipedia that really needed to be solved. And this was like 13, 12 years ago, you know, and for various reasons, like the organization just wasn't going to solve them. And so I was, I just couldn't make it through the meetings when there was this problem that we knew needed to be solved and that we were like actively not solving. We all knew what we were doing. Everybody knew that we were just choosing not to solve these systemic problems with the community and, and that I just couldn't bear, you know. And you felt like you had the solution for them? It was a situation where everybody knew what the solution was. The solutions were obvious, you know. And, but it would have meant 
some difficulty. It, it would have meant been some short-term pain. Yeah, short-term pain and some risk. I'm like maybe a little on the spectrum in this regard where like I I literally can't deal with that situation. Like I I need us to all say we're choosing not to solve this problem because we're not going to take that risk. And therefore, we're just going to keep going. I would be fine with that if we could all just say that and say, okay, okay, so we're just going to like manage decline here. Or like let's all agree to really go for it. Or if half of us want to go for it and half of us don't, then let half of us work on the problem and and the other half, you guys can just blame us if we fail, you know. But I cannot sit there when we're pretending like everything's okay. I can't do it. And I would literally like, you know, lose my mind, you know, in meetings and stuff. And I just had to leave. I just, I begged them to let me leave. And eventually they did. <laughs> Was there any success in your time there at Wikimedia Foundation? Oh, yeah. I built a fundraising program that now raises like $100 million a year based on these banners, you know, that everybody has seen on Wikipedia. And so that, that was a big success that I'm very proud of. And the, and the team there now is really fantastic. And they're, they've been improving the program and building it ever since. But the other part of my job was chief community officer. And, you know, there was this kind of systemic decline in this dynamic volunteer community that built Wikipedia and that I was not able to, uh, to fix. So, yeah. Was there anything from that experience that became valuable in the political world? I don't know. At Wikipedia, we learned a lot about the the potentials of fundraising on a website. The executive director at the time, she recruited me. She was looking for somebody who had done fundraising on a presidential campaign precisely because presidential campaigns have websites that get tons of traffic. Because all these online fundraisers in the nonprofit space were really all about email. But Wikipedia did not have an email list, but it did have everybody in the world visiting their website. I went out there and talked to them because there was back then, there were still only a few people that had run a presidential fundraising program and talked about, you know, how we A-B tested on the websites and all this stuff and tried different messages and different graphics. So then that's what I did. I built a testing program there. And there was something, there was a really interesting discovery that we made there, which was really surprising to me. And that was that this giant paragraph of text is the best thing that we can do with that space on Wikipedia. This big giant wall of text always beats any other use of that space, like putting cool graphics or like having a really cool slogan in a big font or whatever. It's this big chunk of, of words that actually does the work of convincing you, you know, explaining why we need the money and explaining who we are and that we're a nonprofit and that we need your donation. I don't think that has made it into politics, actually. Like, I was not involved in fundraising on the Bernie campaign, but I was often sitting at the table with the folks there. And and I really pushed the fundraising team on Bernie to do more A-B testing of the website. I'm talking about the 2016 campaign. And they did, and they really increased the donation rate, like testing different messages like on the website. The Obama campaign obviously did lots of A-B testing of those messages. On the Kerry campaign, we may have been the first campaign to to A-B test a splash screen, you know, where 
we took, we'd take over the whole screen with this ask. And it was very controversial that we did that. And everybody was very angry, but I don't know if anybody's tried a big giant wall of text. You know, the reason we were able to get there with Wikipedia was that we just kept, you know, we, there's so much traffic that we could literally do, uh, you know, 10 or 20, you know, statistically conclusive tests per day. And, just 10 minutes of testing, we'd get a result back then. Our banners would say, please read this appeal. Then they would read the letter. They'd read a, you know, they'd read a, a whole appeal, which was like a fundraising email. But eventually, you know, when we were starting to have trouble making more gains, we said, what if we put some of the letter into the banner itself? Of course, this was a terrible idea because everybody knows that people surfing the internet don't want to be confronted with tons of text, except this turned out not to be true. We, you know, we tried it and we tried it and it lost for a long time, but then we finally found like the right combination. And, you know, it was funny because we, we, your assumptions always get in the way. We, we were trying to break up this text so that it wouldn't look like such a big wall of text. But finally, when we just gave people this big giant paragraph with no breaks, and then we were able to start to win. And then like having this, all this text to work with allowed us to just, you know, keep discovering gains and more gains and more gains with different phrases and different sentences. There was just so much more to work with than if we just had one sentence. And also the fact that it didn't look like an ad. It seems like it's a fit for Wikipedia where people are used to reading blocks of text. You know. Yeah, but I actually think the results are pretty universal though, because after I was at Wikipedia, but still uh, kind of helping out, I started organizing this group that we called um, Big Weird Fundraising. And <laughs> we tried to get together all of the organizations that were a nonprofit or, or some kind of, or a cause, even if they were a business, kind of a, a cause, right? something people believed in, but that were, but that were also tools because that's the thing about Wikipedia. When I first started Wikipedia, I got Frank O'Brien to come help from OMP. He helped us for the first year and he kept saying, you know, the thing about Wikipedia is that you're a cause and you're a tool, you know, you're a service and a nonprofit with a mission. So, so there's a whole bunch of organizations that kind of fit into that category and they're not all about learning and text like Mozilla, for example. Uh, you know, the Mozilla Foundation, which puts out the Firefox browser and a lot of other great products. So they they started adopting the exact same approach with this big paragraph of text that they would put on their homepage that like hundreds of millions of people would visit every day. And they got the same kind of huge boost in, in results, um, you know, with a very similar message to Wikipedia and, and a big block of text. And there's a whole bunch of other organizations that have adopted that and, and it's worked everywhere. I think presidential campaigns should should try that. I think they would have success with it. I can't remember why I didn't push that harder on the Bernie campaign. Zach, you had a couple stints at ThoughtWorks. How does that fit into your kind of development? ThoughtWorks, it's this big global software company, and it was run by this total left-wing guy. And when I was thinking about going to work on the Edwards campaign. So this is before Obama was even talking about running. The Edwards campaign was kind of trying to recruit me to work to like run their online thing. And so I had a couple meetings with them and I was thinking about it, but it seemed like it was just going to be Hillary versus Edwards. And Edwards was this 
you know, he was running on this kind of populist message. And so I, and I had some meetings with John Edwards and Elizabeth Edwards and that were very interesting. And, um, so anyways, I, when I went to, when I went to foo camp at this same time, I was meeting all these incredible software people. And I met this guy named Martin Fowler, who's like a legend in, in software development. He invented all these new software development practices and writes, writes books about the theory of software development and stuff like that. And he had a gig at ThoughtWorks where he was like their chief scientist kind of guy. And he basically just floated all around the world, sitting with these young coders, you know, raising their morale as they worked on these big soul crushing corporate projects. <laughs> it's not actually true because the, the work they do is so interesting technically and they code at like such a high level of like they're using the coolest technology. So it's not actually soul crushing, but he, but he would come, come around and like, you know, work with them. And I was saying, you know, I, I might work on this campaign. It's presidential campaign. And, you know, we're, I'd love to like build custom software instead of using the old products for the fundraising and the organizing. And he was like, oh, you should talk to ThoughtWorks. So then I was on the phone with the CEO who turned out to be this left winger. He had been like with the Black Panthers and everything. And so I said, wait a minute, you're a, this left wing guy running a global software company. So I said, will you please hire me and, and let me do like software projects for unions and nonprofits and campaigns. And so that's what I did for a few years. And it was really exciting and it was really amazing to work with all these uh, really brilliant software developers that they have at ThoughtWorks. And I got to go all over the world and work with organizations in a bunch of different countries and work on campaigns and projects in a lot of different places. And so that was really fun. Was Josh Hendler there? Oh, yeah. So Josh Hendler and I, because uh, Josh Hendler came to England. Uh, we, we went to England together. And uh, so we worked on the Blair, we worked on the Blair campaign together. And then we pitched ThoughtWorks together as well. So, and we, and we went and did that together. Yeah. Josh did a bunch of big, really interesting projects. Josh led this project with the Obama campaign and ThoughtWorks. And uh, they built all this great software for kind of organizing the field campaign among volunteers in the states that the presidential campaign doesn't care about, you know? Um, and uh, so that was, that was pretty exciting stuff. Josh might have done a better job of cultivating the billionaires than you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> he did. Josh made a big error by like sticking with me even for like a few months. You know, that was just a big error in judgment for Josh. Yeah. Yeah. So he does work with Eric <laughs> Schmidt now. So, yeah. Um, you, I guess I can't help but have you talk a little bit about the Bernie 2016 campaign? Which, of course. Yeah. How did that go? I thought it went great. I really thought I had left politics for good. I was really just trying to make ends meet doing random consulting projects for anybody that would pay me. I was living in the Midwest because I got married and I had a daughter and we moved to my my now ex-wife's hometown in the middle of nowhere in Missouri and in the Ozarks. And I wasn't really liking it. I was like at somebody's house for 4th of July. He was a friend of my my ex-wife's and he, he was this sort of, sort of conservative guy. 
you know, he was sort of ranting and raving about various conspiracy theories. But then he says, what about Bernie? What do you think about Bernie? And I was like, how did, how have you heard of Bernie Sanders? And he's like, he's up to something. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he, um, and so he started showing me, he was following Bernie on, you know, social media and he was really excited about what Bernie was saying. And this was right after Bernie had announced that he was running. So I, it just hit me. I was like, oh my gosh, because I was kind of writing Bernie off. I, cause I was, I'm from New England. I, I had known all about Bernie from the beginning of his career. And I just thought he was just too out of phase with the way politics works in America and with even the democratic electorate to actually like really take off. So I realized I was completely wrong. I knew a couple of people on the Bernie campaign and I literally got on a plane and went to DC the very next day. I stayed there for a few weeks, just working as a volunteer in the office, some of the people there, um, like Kenneth Pennington and um, Hector Sagala and uh, uh, Tim Tagaris. I had known Tim Tagaris from before. He sort of let me into his in, let me into the campaign, and um, and then you know I started wor- working with Kenneth and Hector, and you know they were great. They just like let me in, let me start reaching out to volunteers, let me start putting stuff together, and and I basically had a pitch for them, which was like. In over the past few cycles, like we've developed a bunch of tools and a bunch of techniques for organizing people. And it's never really amounted to much yet, you know, in terms of actually like winning votes and like winning primary contests. But if we did it in a certain way with more focus and really drawing on all of the past lessons, we could really do something amazing, especially with a campaign like Bernie's where you've got so many fired up volunteers. The campaign, you know, really went for that and and accepted that. So eventually Becky Bond, an old friend of mine, came and joined the campaign and we actually had a great collaboration where I could, you know, sort of do R&D and like be starting all those new turbulent painful things. And Becky doesn't like doing that kind of thing. She's really amazing at actually like operationalizing stuff and like making things work and make them be stable and and leading a team and everything. So we kind of had this like dual team system. It worked out really well. One thing that made it work out really well too, which was sort of ironic, was that the top leaders of the campaign initially were didn't want to commit any resources, very, very few resources to doing this stuff. And so at first I was, and I tell this story in the book that Becky and I wrote after the campaign about all this, you know, initially I, I almost like left after that first day because I realized (laughs) that we weren't going to be able to hire hardly anybody. And the way the decisions were being made on the campaign about what to fund, you know, were, was just crazy. I I think it was Kenneth who told me that you're like, these people don't know what they're doing. (laughs) I'm out of here. <laughs> it wasn't that I said they don't know what they're doing. It was that same situation, right? Where like the leaders I was interacting with, the leaders of these different departments, right? They they were they were like, "No, no, Zach. We don't get any resources." And I was like, "What are you talking about?" And they and then they're like, "Let us let you in on how crazy this is, you know, and how crazy Bernie as a decision maker is, you know, and how how, you know, how, how awful the campaign manager is as a decision maker. So they explained it. And I was like, wait, so you guys are just going to let 
Bernie lose? Like we have this opportunity to do something amazing because it was the campaign was really taking off. It was clear that we were going to be able to raise hundreds of millions of dollars and they all knew it. And I was like, but Bernie and, and Jeff, the campaign manager and the CFO, they had just never experienced this online fundraising thing, right? They were making all of their decisions based on the idea that they were going to raise like $10 million, you know, but they were going to raise like hundreds of millions of dollars. It was so awful, you know, and, and I, I said, no, no, we have to go and convince Bernie if the campaign manager is just being completely obstinate, you know, and, and ridiculous, like, let's go talk to Bernie, you know? And um, they're just like, no, 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 no. We're not doing that. That's not this situation. It's just not going to happen, Zach. So I was just like, uh, but then I woke up the next morning and I said, all right, all right. Like I, I was really interested in running this experiment to see what we can do with volunteers why don't we just build it all with volunteers? So I thought, okay, this is like an actually like a constraint, you know, because sometimes when you have a constraint that leads to innovation and it, it creates situations that you just would not have without the constraint. I was hearing about, you had the ability to take volunteers from other states and have them kind of call through the voter file in a early state, like multiple times. Like the, there was just like a an, ex, an excess of of volunteer resources that nobody had really ever employed that way to that scale before. Is that what we were talking about here, basically? Yeah, yeah. Because we were trying to figure out what can we do that will actually make a difference in the election, you know, in by in winning these primaries. And yeah, you know, the the way our primary system works is that you have this one race in Iowa, and then in New Hampshire and then in South Carolina. And so then everybody in these other 49 states and bunch of territories and the world for that matter, right? Because you actually have tons of people from all over the world that want to volunteer. So you have literally like hundreds of thousands of people that would actively be working, except you don't have anything for them to do because you don't have an organization in their state and all the action is in Iowa or Nevada. So we we thought that the obvious thing to do would be because phone banking is a big thing. And so let's have everybody in the country phone bank. And this had been done before. The software that Hendler and I worked on with the Obama campaign was precisely uh, that in the general election, though. In, in 2008, the Obama campaign had some, some really amazing experiments in this realm there were these areas in around the country, like in, in the Bay Area, in California, where they organized a whole bunch of volunteers. But it wasn't this like completely distributed thing. It was like they had offices. They had a handful of offices where people would come in and volunteer. And, it, you know, they got a lot of work done. It was cool. But it, it, it wasn't like this, you know, everybody everywhere. So there was sort of an idea like, you know, can volunteers really be productive and effective if they're just in their kitchens? You know, from all that experience at Move On and stuff that we had tried to do at Cary and that project I was talking about at the Obama campaign, we, you know, I really felt like we knew it, it was possible to to make volunteers really productive and effective. But we were going to need a little bit of new technology, like we were going to need a, a phone banking tool that volunteers could use in their houses, which didn't really exist right then. We were also going to need like a whole bunch of ways for like the data to get around. There's all these different parts that had to get together, right? The big and the most exciting thing was we needed a, we needed a setup 
that would actually get people to do this hard work. And the, I have a whole presentation about this whole thing that I love to to give. And but like the only place I've ever given it is in other countries, in like Europe and Latin America, where political parties and political organizations invite some of us Bernie people to come talk. I don't think I've ever gotten an invitation to speak about this in the US. You know, <laughs> when I break down this this whole thing in the presentation, I talk about how you know, we had hundreds of thousands of people that had signed up saying they wanted to volunteer. And they were actually like getting really angry on social media and and like even like emailing Bernie and stuff and and the campaign manager angrily because we weren't giving them stuff to do because it was taking us a little while to get set up. But then when we finally had this phone banking system ready, we sent out emails like click here to start phone banking and like almost zero people, like five people completed more than five calls or something. Like that's how few people actually clicked on the link, read the instructions, watched the video, and then did the phone banking. That was a huge problem. So the really exciting part of for me uh, of this whole experience was going out on the road. Why was it that so few people wanted to f- would click on the link and actually phone bank? And that's because phone banking is not only boring, but it's also scary. It's really hard. And that's what organizing is all about, actually. It's about getting people to do boring work that actually accomplishes stuff. But ultimately, when you're trying to change something in the world, you're doing scary things like calling people at dinner or knocking on the door. So it's impossible to get people to do a scary and boring thing by sending them an email. And so there, so there had to be some other way And that way turned out to be, you can use an email list to get people to do something fun and exciting. It's the opposite of scary and boring. And and fun and exciting is go to a rally, go to a meeting or go to a rally with other Bernie supporters and like meet somebody from the Bernie campaign. And so ultimately we had this team that went all around the, the country getting, you know, hundreds and hundreds of sometimes thousands of Bernie volunteers together. And then we had this whole process that we fine tuned to actually make those people get together at their homes and do the phone banking. And that was really exciting and, and really fun. At a certain point when that started working, was the campaign manager and the candidate, were they aware of it? Did they end up putting resources at all in that direction? How did that play out? We, we did gradually get more and more resources and we wound up with like a 25 person team. And that, that was a really great thing that the campaign did, but it was always, you know, a struggle to get the resources that we needed, you know, on time. For example, you know, we needed the voter file for the whole country. Voter file wasn't that much, but eventually they were going to get the voter file. But we just didn't have the voter file and didn't have the voter file for the longest time. You know, like all this stuff with the van that, you know, you have to pay to turn on in a new state. And we just never got that stuff until we didn't really need it anymore. I remember one time there was a picture of the Clinton campaign's digital team with Bill Clinton with his arms around half of them, you know, there was like 60 people in the picture, you know, and, and I, I think, I think I was sitting at the table, you know, at the, with the entire digital team of the Bernie campaign, which was like six people or something. When this picture came out, 
we were just sitting there laughing. You know, we were just like, what the hell? But we did run circles around them. Hector Sagala, who managed Bernie's social media, just did such a better job than like whatever 20 people did that for Clinton. In extreme situations when there's like extremely bad decision making, yes, sometimes you get some good effects because the normal type of bad decision making is prevented from happening because you've got this like other crazy bad decision making happening. But it would be better to have a good decision making, right? <laughs> How much do you think the success online of Bernie compared to Hillary, as you see it, was a result of the candidate and how they were viewed in the electorate rather than the tactics by the campaign. How would you evaluate that? Because it seems to me like it's a more fun and freeing job and a different subset of the electorate that is more full of enthusiasm that's being targeted by Sanders than by Clinton. And then you see that in the Obama-Hillary matchup in, in 08. You see that in, you know, kind of Warren and Sanders and some and many other candidates in 2020. I'm somewhat skeptical about like how much it is, how good the digital team and how much it is kind of the candidate and what they're willing to say and not say and to whom. Yeah. I mean, I think it's all of it, but I think that but I, I think like people were incredibly excited about Hillary, actually. One difference was that the Bernie pants, was going the pantsuit nation sort of people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the future pantsuit nation, you know. People were incredibly excited about about Hillary. But like Bernie was going around doing big events and Hillary was like actively not doing big events. And that's just a really simple strategic mistake. Bernie liked to do big events, was good at doing big events, and Hillary was a little more risk averse about things like that. I well, assume. well, yeah. Well, that's that's the thing. It's yeah. the I I think the it's the risk averse thing. Like I I think I think Hillary was was fine with big events. She just had her head in the sand. She was just afraid to do stuff. I think not so much of it is because it is, comes from the candidates. Actually, after witnessing a bunch of these presidential campaigns, I think who the candidate is. And how they appear really gets determined by the the few people around them. I think that there's this dynamic that I've seen in every cycle where the candidate who is going to be the front runner and the second best candidate as well, they get the best staff with the most experience and it dooms them because those people are risk averse because they have already won their presidential campaign. So like if you're running for president, do not hire anybody to be your top people who have won a presidential campaign before because they're going to be risk averse and they're just not going to try that hard. And they're not going to like just blow stuff up and fight to make stuff happen. That's going to make you win. You know, is Biden a counterexample to that? Kerry's also a counterexample to that. Right. So in the end, the establishment won. Right. But but it was really because of the own goals. The Biden situation is a little more complicated. I mean, he had people that had been with him for a long time. And then he picked up people who had won nominations and things like that. The reason Biden did so, ba did so bad for so long is because of that dynamic of the risk aversion and just not doing 
crazy stuff. But also like Beto hired these people from like the Obama 202012 world. And like he just instantly became a boring candidate like all the others. Suddenly he was surrounded by these people who were just like, oh, wait, 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 you know, and and so he just wasn't able to just be his own crazy self like he was on the Senate race, you know. I mean, he did get pretty far out there on guns and things like that. I can't remember that he had a big impact on the race, but uh, he took some some swings that were outside of the safe zone. In the presidential campaign? Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm not trying to come up with a whole perfectly consistent theory about this, but you know, Bernie's campaign manager was Jeff Weaver, who was his like 18-year-old driver, you know, back in the 80s, you know. Long trusted associate. Yeah. Yeah, and basically to be Bernie's main guy, like you just have to like just say yes to every, you just have to like let Bernie be Bernie, right? And and there's a whole bunch of stuff that, you know, because Bernie is kind of a control freak and a micromanager and he's very weird about decision making and doesn't make decisions um, until the last possible moment, you know, until the New York Times writes an article that says that he's, Bernie's going to lose because he's not doing X. So then he'll do it, you know, even though people have been trying to get him to do it for months and months on his own campaign. And, you know, so it's just kind of a mess. So Jeff was just like willing to roll with that. Bernie can only function if he's got somebody who's going to roll with him like that. Do you think that would have made him uh, not a very successful president? I mean, decision making with dispatch is often a really good characteristic in an executive. I think there's no way to predict who's going to be a good president, actually, because when you get into the situation of actually being president, maybe you put somebody else in charge who, you know, maybe you, you get a chief of staff who's going to like, maybe, you you know, maybe you change your pattern. Who knows how, what kind of a president Bernie would have been, you know, and it also depends on so many other things, like whether, like, who knows, like Congress might've just like the democratic party in Congress might've just went into full revolt against Bernie and just tried to stop him. Like if Bernie was trying to get his agenda done, really trying to make changes, like you might have just had like the Democratic Party just say no, you know, and just not let him do anything. Or they might have all said yes. It's really hard to tell. It really is. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, in like in it's, you know, it's really interesting to look at Latin America where you have these populist left wing candidates winning a lot over the past handful of years. But usually they like instantly just get stopped by their congresses, you know, and they're just not able to do anything. And then they sometimes look like, you know, they failed because uh, they did fail because they weren't allowed to do anything. So who knows what would have happened? But um, yeah, I forget what, what tangent were we on there? I don't know. Oh, oh, right. I, I, one, one thing you asked me was, if did like, was Bernie aware of all this organizing and stuff that was happening? Well, one time I, after the campaign, when I was starting to work on justice Democrats and policy stuff, I, I met um, Robert Reich. Am I saying his name wrong? Reich. Reich. Oh. It's Robert Reich. Sorry, Bob. <laughs> but uh, so he's like, how did that happen? Like, how did all that stuff get organized and everything? Because he was a big Bernie supporter and was closely involved in the campaign and everything as an advisor with Bernie. It's like after the campaign, you know, I asked Bernie, how did, how did that all happen? And he's like, what do you mean? He, and he's like, well, who organized all that? 
And Bernie was like, what, what do you mean? He said, well, like, you know, like, what kind of people are out there organizing? And Bernie's like, Bob, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, it's like me and Jeff and Jane. And we would go and we would go to the stadium and we'd get up there and I would do my thing. And then, you know, that's, that's just it. You know, I don't know what you're talking about. Someone's creating that crowd for him. You know, it's not just happening no. without. He had, he had no idea. He had no idea. He literally just thought that everything just happens to come together, you know. But it's it's so hard to see as the candidate. It's so hard to see what's happening out there. It's not their fault, you know. It's too much on their plate. Yep. And and But it's a physical thing. They get, you know, like they can't go to the bathroom you know, without all hell breaking loose. You know what I mean? Like when they, like seriously, like getting the candidate from wherever the candidate is to the bathroom without them being like, you know, harassed physically, you know, in the bathroom when they're trying to pee, like that's a huge thing. So just imagine going through every day, all day with that kind of, and you have to shake hands with all these people who have pinned all of their hopes on you. And so I don't blame any of the candidates for not getting it. It's funny. It reminds me of like the one conversation I ever had with Hillary Clinton. Okay, no, I guess there was three. But, but, the, but the one conversation about organizing when she was a senator and she was confronted by – like just by chance, she like walked out. She was like walking down the stairs and standing at the bottom of the stairs were me, Ari Rabenhoft, Tom – Tom Matsey and Joe Rosebars. And we were, and the three of us were like beating up on Joe Rosebars, who was working at the DNC at the time, trying, you know, who was in charge of building all the infrastructure, all the digital infrastructure for the upcoming presidential race. And everybody assumed, because this, nobody was really talking about Obama. So everybody assumed that Hillary was going to be the front runner and the eventual candidate. And so we felt like Joe wasn't doing enough. And so we were beating up on him. And then Hillary comes walking down the stairs and we're all like, oh my gosh, this is our chance to talk to Hillary Clinton, the next president of the United States. And so I, of course, took the role of pushing her and saying all the things you're not supposed to say to somebody like that. And Tom was just shaking his head and he was just like, Zach, just what are you doing? Shut up. And, but anyways, I was like, I was like, Senator, listen, like there's somebody, you know, who might be running for president that everybody knows is going to be running for president, you know, has the power to like tell the DNC to like get its fucking act together. There's all this amazing stuff that could be built to enable like this incredible new level of organizing. The DNC is just spinning its wheels, you know, and not really getting this done. And somebody like you should take an interest in this. And she said, you know, about this organizing thing, I just don't think that's how it works. If you get the message right, if you have the message, the message that inspires people, all that organizing stuff is just going to work out. People are just going to get together and do their thing. And it's funny because after all these years, I kind of agree with her, actually, you know, (laughs) like because uh, it would be amazing to build the perfect, well-oiled organizing machine. And I think we did take a step towards that in the Bernie 2016 primary. But it's so unusual that in a new startup organization that a well-oiled machine is going to be created and actually work. It's so rare. Like, how can we hope that that's going to happen? So it's basically comes down to like, what are the products that already exist? What are the practices that everybody's going to follow? 
What does the DNC have established? That's what it comes down to. And then, yeah, if people are really inspired, they're going to do their thing. So I kind of agree with Hillary now. But the terrible irony of this was that <laughs> she didn't get a terrible message <laughs> in, in 2008 and, and got completely out, out organized by somebody with a way better message. So, yeah. Well, it's that particular anecdote, in my view, is gold, and I'm, it's been worth this whole conversation. To do. <laughs> so I, I hope I didn't have to torture. I hope I, I feel sorry for all of the torture everybody had to endure with my roundabout stories to get that one anecdote that was worth it. Yes. <laughs> well, maybe other people, I'm sure, will have different opinions about. It. But I, I, one thing I'm I am curious about your view on is there was that split in the party in in 2016, which mirrored many splits before, of course, but it was a painful one. It was painful in my family where like I was on one side, my sister was on another, my, my mother was for Hillary, you know, like it, it, it split us right down the middle where we, and all people whose judgment I respect came to different opinions about that. And, uh, and it became, you know, fairly uncomfortable as things got more heated and it got and it was close and a lot was in, in the balance. What, what was your view about like that pain the party went through and the difficulty in healing that? What did you think? Because you have that. I think you have a, a different perspective than a lot of people probably. Well, I mean, you know, I read a lot of history and I've spent a lot of time working in politics in different countries as well. And it, I mean, you know, that tension between the Hillary camp and the Bernie camps was like so not a thing on the scale of like history and what other countries deal with. You know what I mean? <laughs> so we're really sensitive flowers, right? But I know what you're talking about because there, because I had friends, really close friends who were so angry about how they perceived, you know, the the behavior of the Bernie camp and the Bernie campaign and everything. And they they were so angry. It went both directions. Like I have people are still mad that I know about what they felt was a stolen. Yeah, I mean, but I, I lost friends, right? No, yeah. I wasn't gonna lose any friends over the Hillary campaign because I had it in perspective, you know. But they felt like something so terrible was was being done by the Bernie side, by the Bernie campaign. My view is that it was, um, of course, there were a lot of uh, bad Bernie supporters who did a bunch of sexist and misogynist and harassing things. But there was equally as much, at least equally as much, terrible behavior on the Clinton side. That's politics. That's how campaigns go, unfortunately, right? To me, what is annoying is that the Clinton side, a lot of the people I knew on the Clinton side, just like they could not accept that. They just had to have it be that all the Hillary supporters were these wonderful people. And there was just this terrible exception, you know, which was these, you know, misogynist Bernie people who were like just completely different. And the media has to ha characterize things, right? So like the media character comes up with these narratives and then those are, then those narratives are just like the truth, you know, that you can't question. We were talking about one of these earlier, like Hillary was boring, right? Nobody was excited about Hillary. That was 
bullshit. It's completely not true. But that was the narrative. And so that was the truth. And then only these Bernie supporters were, were being terrible and acting inappropriately, which just wasn't true. And then also that the Bernie campaign was condoning this and was supporting this, and that wasn't true. And that Bernie was condoning it and supporting it. Totally not true. But that was the narrative. So, um, so yeah, I think there was, you know, and also it wasn't really that unusual either. Like in 2008, you had this huge conflict between the Obama camp and, and Obama supporters and Hillary. The Hillary campaign was being accused of racism and there was a lot of bad stuff happening on the Hillary side. And um, I can tell you all the racist shit that I heard from Hillary supporters, including really big, important ones in 2008. But, you know, nobody even remembered it afterwards. So part of the reason why nobody remembers the Hillary Obama division was because Obama won and then hired all the Hillary people. After that campaign, uh, you kind of went on a tear of starting different organizations with different levels of ambition. No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it that way. We started one thing called Brand New Congress, and then we basically rebranded it as Justice Democrats because it started out as, as this very wacky idea, and then it became a less wacky idea as Justice Democrats. And, um, and then I started New Consensus. I realized I was too old for this campaign drama anymore. And I, like I was saying at the beginning of the podcast, I, I realized we had a need to, to back up our candidates with some policy support. Am I forgetting other organizations? Yeah, you are. Um, <laughs> really? Uh, <laughs> I think you're part of Middle Seat for a bit. Say one paragraph about Middle Seat. Well, Middle Seat was Kenneth and Hector. They decided they were going to start a firm after the Bernie campaign. And I said, I would really love to help you guys. And so let me help you get started. I just wanted to be like a little part of it because I wanted to do my, I was trying to come up with another OMP gig, you know, where I could earn a little bit on the side and to, so that I could keep trying to do the revolution. Right. I just helped them in a very small way, get their firm started. That's it. And I really didn't do all that much. I really wasn't doing anything with middle seat. So I, I just stepped out. What about the brand new Congress, so Justice Democrats thing? Well, well, that's what, you know, I have had this vision for a long time of that there is a way, given our institutions, to have like pretty much a political revolution, as Bernie says, where we could have a real mass movement, you know, political movement that throws the bums out. And uh, I think it's possible. I think it can be done. And so that was the idea behind Brand New Congress. I pitched the, the team. I pitched the team on, let's have a revolution and sweep Congress. And Becky pitched them on starting a consultancy and having good jobs. And they, they all joined Becky's cause. And <laughs> except for three, three of the team, Shoykat, Corbin, and Alex Rojas, we started Brand New Congress. It was this very exciting idea, and it wound up being a real mix of success and also something really different from you know what the original idea was. Because we didn't get a sweep of Congress, we got one new member of Congress in 2018, which was Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I recently interviewed a movie director 
uh, Rachel, Rachel Lears. Yeah. Yeah. Who uh, followed that campaign and, and then also had, has a new one out called to the end of you. Seen yeah. It? Yeah. She, I've seen both. Yeah. She followed, she was following brand new Congress. And then as we changed into justice Democrats and she followed a number of the candidates in the end, the movie came out very appropriately being a story about these candidates. And, um, but, uh, I was like, I was totally opposed to that documentary. I mean, I, I thought Rachel was great and was a great film filmmaker and everything. But in the beginning I was like, I was like, guys, they don't make documentaries about like, oh, that was a pretty cool project. There's only two possible documentaries. One is this was a complete shit show. And these were the wackiest, most idiotic people who just like went down in a blaze of flaming idiocy, you know, or these are the most brilliant people who pulled off this amazing thing, you know, that was impossible. We know that we don't have a great chance of success here, you know, so like what kind of a documentary do you think this is going to be? But of course it, it, came out as a really, really beautiful documentary that tells the story of these four incredible campaigns, which included Alexandria's campaign and Cori Bush's campaign. Cori became a congresswoman, and of course, in the in the next cycle. She she won the second time around. So yeah, it's an amazing movie. What what do you think of AOC? I think she's amazing. On the one hand, she's got kind of superhuman, you know, abilities that allow her to, you know, engage this base and everything. But at the same time, I think most of our candidates that, you know, we ran 15 candidates uh, that cycle. I think most of them had those same superhuman abilities. So we shouldn't call them superhuman because tons of humans have these abilities. As I was talking about earlier, like as a union organizer, this was my big lesson was that in, you know, if I was organizing a nursing home with 500 workers, what I knew, what I learned was that there were going to be 25 leaders, approximately 25 or 30 leaders that were just going to be off the charts, incredible leaders, world-class superhuman leaders. Again, I'm using the wrong word because if there's 25 per 500, then we, humans like this, we shouldn't call it superhuman. Well, somehow I think circumstances make leaders. Yeah, exactly. But, but, I, but what I'm saying is that so many people have these inherent um, qualities, right? And again, yeah, and, and the circumstances have a lot to do with it. And um, and like, I think one thing that allowed AOC to just be so completely different and so completely compelling was that she wasn't constrained by those kinds of people I was talking about before, the campaign staffers who are going to be like, oh, wait, wait, no, 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 don't do that, don't do that. It's not even a problem of like people saying no, because often like these campaign people will say yes, you know, they'll be like, yeah, okay, let's do this risky thing. As a leader, the mindset and as a staffer, the mindset that you're in when you attempt this risky thing, if, if the past three days have been like all fear-based, worrying, ah, what's going to happen? Ah, are you going to ruin your career? You know, and, um, and, you know, that by the time you attempt the risky thing, first of all, you're, you're attempting the risky thing too late because you just spent a week hemming and hawing about it. And you're approaching it with like all these qualifications and fears and stuff, you know, AOC was in this really unique position where she could be herself back to Bernie for all my critique of like the 
the situation with Bernie as a as a as a candidate. Like the one thing that he guaranteed with the extreme way that 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 he set himself up in that campaign, you know, is his insistence on keeping certain things very small and the same as what he was used to as through his whole life. Well, that allowed him to keep being him, you know, and the people around him let him be him. And that's part of what excited people. So AOC was kind of was was lucky, you know, to be in that situation. Something that everybody forgets, something that nobody, very few people know this or remember this, is that like nobody endorsed AOC in her first race. Like Bernie did not endorse AOC. You know, nobody remembers that. She's taking on the guy fourth in the leadership of the House, right? Yeah, yeah. DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America, endorsed AOC and like benefited amazingly from this, you know, from this endorsement because then everybody started calling AOC a socialist. And, you know, her first interview with Colbert a few, a couple days after the election, her primary election, he's like, So you're a socialist, you know? Why, why, where did he get that idea? You know, she never said she was a socialist. He got that idea because DSA was like, putting out press releases for the first time in its history saying we elected a socialist, you know, she went in there with like no strings attached and, and she was just free to do whatever she wanted. And nobody was telling her because, because, um, because, uh, Shoykat and Corbin who were co-founders with me of, of the whole project, they went with her to, to DC. They staffed her in her office and they were not hemming and hawing and worrying and stuff. You know, they were like, Let's do this. Let's go big. I was going to say, imagine being somebody so young and going into that cauldron. But, you know, for, forget that. Forget being so young. Like, just imagine anybody, you know, with any level of experience becoming the focus of attention of the entire world. She was getting invited to address the UN you know, not just to do the big giant TED talk, you know, but also to like address the UN, you know, and all this crazy stuff, you know, like every single political party, every head of state, everybody wanted to meet with her. So much pressure, you know, Obama was, Obama was calling her, you know, she was white hot. Yeah. It was really incredible to see how she stayed herself, was not enticed or disrupted by any of it. And uh, I, I think it must, I, I really don't know AOC, but it must have just taken like so much energy and so much strength, you know, to be able to deal with that. I think the kind of people that usually run for office are like not, you know, they're the opposite. You know, they, they are going to be disrupted by that kind of attention because it's all they've lived for. And they're instantly going to think about how to protect their career, how to keep things safe. And they're going to get enticed and and kind of corrupted by you know all, all of that uh, attention and all of that energy and 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 but I think that I don't think you, I don't think that AOC is like so incredibly unique and this is the good news right for us looking to the challenges we have in the future I think there's like a thousand people in every congressional district that could lead at the same level and with the same abilities as AOC you know, there's a million people in a congressional district approximately, and I think there's about a thousand that can do what AOC has been doing. And so just imagine if you actually were able to bring those kinds of people into Congress in great numbers, have them actually get to work solving our problems instead of just worrying about their careers. I think that would be an incredible thing. And that's what the original idea of brand new Congress was. I, I saw a video of her 
at some kind of town hallish thing recently where her vote to f- help furnish arms to Ukraine was being contested by someone screaming from the anti-war position from the audience in a way that was unsettling because you would th- in in almost every situation she would be on the flank and you wouldn't have someone after her from the left, right? I think I know the video you're talking about. I think it got a lot of attention, but but she's been attacked from the left um, like since the very beginning. She didn't take the positions that certain kinds of lefties wanted her to take on like Israel. So she she's always getting screamed at by the left. And Eric Swalwell is not getting screamed at by the left, you know, but AOC is getting screamed at by the left. We talked about this earlier. Because they think she's theirs. They don't think she's theirs, actually. They, they really hate her. Those kinds of lefties really, really hate her. They think that she represents something, you know, and so, and she's, she's being successful. And so she's like, it, yeah, it's the same reason we were, you know, it's like the People's Front of Judea and the Judea's People's Front. <laughs> and that's hard to deal with. Just imagine getting, you know, because she, yeah, somebody like AOC gets it with millions of people coming at her. You know, I get it with dozens of people coming at me on Twitter, but I get, you know, people from both sides. Like I was saying earlier that some some people think I'm working for the Chinese communists and some people think I'm working for Putin. There's this whole Twitter Democrat account, like just devoted to... uh trolling me. And and then they suddenly disappeared the other day. I don't know why. They had the wall with me and Putin and the billionaires and they were putting it all together, you know, and yeah. yeah. It's, uh, it, it makes you feel relevant when you get that kind of attention for a minute. That's the thing. When they stop, I don't know. This one week, I just kind of was bored and made a bad decision and I started engaging with them and I just was like, I just want to say thank you, you know, because I, I... <laughs> I just would really feel like a complete loser if you guys weren't there. Yeah. So I've been waiting for a couple hours for you to talk about new consensus. (laughs) Um, (laughs) We probably should have started off with that, but so you started yet another thing. It's at least your second thing. I think it's a little bit more than that called new consensus. It's kind of a think tank. It's fairly small. What are you doing there? What's the founding story and what have you been up to? Well, the founding story is that I got a bit of a grandiose idea and I said, let's make a big think tank to provide the policy and the ideological support for this new generation of progressives coming in, you know, that are starting to think about industrial policy and how to rebuild the economy and uh, all that. And how do we transition to a clean economy? There's this gap. It's a lot smaller now, but like five years ago, it was really huge. There was kind of nothing in between like carbon tax, like let's tax carbon and let the market take care of everything. And that's how we're going to transition the economy. And then on the other side, there was like keep it in the ground activists who were like, we're just going to get millions of people to block oil wells and oil ports and oil refineries and just shut down the fossil fuel industry. And there was like nothing in between those two positions. And to me, what's really fascinating is how those two positions are really kind of the same in a lot of ways. Like it's, it's like, if we just send this signal, if we just make oil more expensive, whether it's by keeping it in the ground through activism or taxing it, then all the billionaires that run the world economy, 
they'll just be a meeting at Davos and they'll be like, guys, you know, oil's too expensive now. We need to transition the economy. And like, they'll know how to do it. But the truth is that capitalists do not have the ability and never have, with one exception, they've never had the ability to transform an economy. It's just not what they do. I'm a really good armchair intellectual, but I'm a really bad actual intellectual. I always was before because I do still want to get one of your listeners to fund my PhD. Usually if you apply, they will give you a fellowship and most of it will be paid for. So you just need the income on the side, which you just you know, do a little consulting for an OMP. problem is I actually have a family and all that stuff. Yeah. yeah. So, well, you know, you it know. gets a little more expensive Details. than the teaching assistantship. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> but I did read all the time and I was really obsessed with these, with learning about how economies develop and, and everything. So I, I had a bunch of ideas about it. And I also saw that there was this new consensus that was going to emerge. Like for a long time, I've seen it coming so now that it's really starting to arrive, I, of course, have a mix of, of sour grapes because, you know, <laughs> I, it's like, where have you been all these years? You know, okay, now, fine. You know, it, it would have been better if you guys got on this bandwagon a long time ago. But at the same time, it's very exciting. So I wanted to like have a big organization with lots of people and that we would be like a decent sized think tank that would do a bunch of work in this space. And pump out the policies. And that, and and I really wanted us to be able, I wanted us to support all of these people that were emerging, you know, all the economists and various kinds of policy thinkers, you know, that were emerging in this new consensus. That was the original grand vision. This moment presented itself to basically to do the Green New Deal. And that was sort of a more of like a campaign moment, but it created, you know, this really you know, amazing new landscape in the in the climate policy world. Who who originates that? Where is that? Like, who gets credit, or what group of people get credit for that? Well, go listen to the podcasts where credit is assigned. That's all I can say. But the good news is is that you know there was a protest organized by Sunrise. And these young people are in Nancy Pelosi's office, very smartly targeting Nancy Pelosi. And uh, at this very amazing moment when her leadership was potentially going to be challenged, which it should have been like the Democrats, the, the progressives in Congress at that time should have done what the right wing did to Kevin McCarthy. You know, they, they should have gotten some really great concessions, you know, out of Pelosi in that moment. And it would have been good for everybody. It would have been good for Pelosi. And the Green New Deal could have been one of those, actually. And I'll explain what I mean by that. But these Sunrise young people did this protest in Nancy Pelosi's office. I had been talking to them and so and and they they were like, Do you do you really know AOC? Were you really involved in that? And uh, I was like, Well, what are you talking about? And they're like, Well, we could she tweet about this protest that we're gonna do? And so I got them on the phone with Shoikot, who was gonna be starting as AOC's chief of staff, and he talked to AOC about it and AOC was like, well, why don't I go to that protest? And and this is what I mean about not being surrounded by normal political staffers. Why didn't any of the other cool progressive candidates go to that protest? It turned out to be incredible for AOC. You know, it was this huge thing that made her even more famous, really built up her power in Congress among her colleagues. You know, why didn't anybody else 
do that because they all had normal political staffers who were like, that would be crazy. You can't do that. But what was the demand going to be? Basically, the Green New Deal was the, like AOC was talking about the Green New Deal all through her campaign. The whole idea behind Brand New Congress was that we'd have this big block of candidates running on essentially the Green New Deal. And sometimes we called it the Green New Deal, but people were very hesitant about the name Green New Deal because there's like historical baggage with the New Deal. People have issues with green. But in the end, in this pinch, right, when when like AOC was going to bring a demand and what should it be called? And there's just nothing else you could call it, you know? And, um, and again, this is why... AOC is able to succeed because there was no big bureaucracy of staffers and consultants who were like, green doesn't pull well with communities of color, you know, and nobody remembers what the new deal was, you know, and so all these experts, all these policy and messaging experts are like, the green new deal is really bad branding. It's terrible. Don't say that. AOC, I think, I don't know. I, I wasn't talking to her then, but I, I mean, I wasn't involved in the conversations that she and her staff were having, but I assume that she was just like, what else are we going to call it, guys? Like, come on, you know, (laughs) Sunrise as a democratic organization, you know, where everything had to be consensus based and everything like all left wing progressive policy, you know, climate orgs, right? They couldn't really come with a demand, you know, like their demand was something like green jobs. We're going to ask Pelosi to work on green jobs. And so that wasn't really going to land anywhere. You know, like Pelosi could easily say, yeah, no problem, green jobs. And what what AOC actually showed up to that protest with was a demand for some text to be added to the rules resolution. So, you know, nobody knows about this stuff, but like, well, maybe they do now because of that whole Kevin McCarthy Republican thing. The House begins with with a, a vote on the rules And there's this big resolution that gets passed that like decides who the leader is going to be and who the speaker is going to be and how things are going to be done and all this stuff. None of that stuff's in the constitution. It's in the rules of the house that get passed. And it includes all these committees, the structure of the committees and what the jobs of the committees are going to be. So basically what AOC proposed was that a new committee be created to work to spend two years when the Democrats weren't going to have anything else to do because the Republicans controlled the presidency and the Senate, it proposed to create a committee that would spend two years coming up with a plan to transition the whole U.S. economy in 10 years and that they would have a little research budget of a few million dollars and they would be able to call experts. And there were certain parameters for the plan that will get us to 100% or to, you know, to net zero and that will have these elements and stuff like that. So it was really smart. Imagine if 10 progressives had said that they weren't going to vote for, I think it only would have taken five at that time. Imagine if five or six progressives said, we're not going to vote for Pelosi and had extracted one concession, create this committee to come up with a plan for the Green New Deal. Then in 2020, we would have had this like really well fleshed out plan for a transition. All this amazing thinking would have come out of that. The IRA, when it was eventually passed, would have been even way better. But it would have had all kinds of amazing, really smart stuff in it because a whole bunch of Democrats in Congress working with a bunch of policy experts and would have hammered out all this amazing stuff. 
Nobody remembers this, but that's what the actual demand of the Green New Deal was. It was to create a committee to come up with a plan. I'm pretty sure that AOC thought that she was probably throwing away her career and was just going to be laughed at you know, for proposing such a big, bold, wacky thing. But instead, like this weird momentum got rolling. There was a lot of really good work done by some of the communications people that were at Justice Democrats at the time and people in AOC's office like Corbin Trent, who was doing communications. There was a lot of great work, you know, to like push journalists to not denounce it or to walk back their denunciations. Because again, we were moving cheese, right? You know, cheese was being moved. So therefore all these very well-meaning climate journalists and very well-meaning policy heads of big climate organizations and green groups, they were all coming out against the Green New Deal in the first few hours of this release of the Green New Deal. But then this really interesting thing happened. Like, you know, they were denouncing it on Twitter as being stupid and 10 years isn't possible and all this stuff. And um, it's too big. It's too ambitious. Stop it. But it was this interesting thing where everybody working on it was able to ask these journalists and policy heads, well, what do you propose then? Because what we've put into this plan, we're just saying the Democrats should come up with a plan for transitioning the economy as fast as humanly possible and physically possible. And the target is net zero, right? And so if, we, if, if this isn't it, then what is it? Because you guys are all saying that the planet is going to end and that the species is going to be in danger if we don't do this. So why shouldn't we be calling for it if this is what you're saying is necessary? And, and it's very rare that anything like this happens. It's kind of like in the movie when like the hero makes a speech and then everybody changes their mind, which like never happens in, in real life. But, um, you know, it's like, everybody's like, oh, that's such a good point. Okay, we'll stop the war, you know. But that kind of happened in this case because all these people were like, all these big journalists and policy people were like, huh, yeah, that's true. And so then you had people like Paul Krugman, you know, like writing a basically supportive piece about it and like Joe Stiglitz coming out with supportive stuff about it. And the New York Times editorial board puts out a thing where they're like, this is pretty wacky and crazy, but this probably is what we need to do. And then a bunch of other climate journalists got on board and then a bunch of green groups got on board. The really interesting thing, though, was the interplay between the Green New Deal and Justice Democrats, because something like 130 Democratic members of Congress endorsed the Green New Deal and like wound up like co-signing the version that came later that was co-sponsored by Ed Markey in the Senate. And like most of those people didn't support the Green New Deal or anything like it, but they endorsed it because they were so terrified of getting primaried, you know? So they just wanted to not get primaried. You know, and in Markey's case, I mean, I think Markey is a great guy, but why would he do something so crazy as to like be the face of the, you know, actually support? Like when I heard that this thing was going to happen with Ed Markey, I was just like, oh, this is the end. Like he's going to water it down so bad. And he didn't. He probably saved his job. That's exactly right. I guess he saw this coming. He knew he was going to get challenged by somebody named Kennedy, and he knew that was going to be an, a serious challenge. So he really played that very, very well. But you know, but it was really this threat in the House because nobody really understood how AOC won. And so they just kind of had this feeling like we're all vulnerable, which is a big factor in politics. Like if you look at any political revolution or 
armed revolution, like so much of it is smoke and mirrors. So much of it is, is confusion, right? And all these people in Congress were afraid that they were going to be replaced by this magical force that was being unleashed, you know? And a bunch of them were actually in danger. In 2020, a whole bunch of people were replaced by new Justice Democrats candidates, and then a few more in 2022. But most of the people that signed on, just being honest, were not in danger. But they didn't know that. They had no idea what they were dealing with. They felt like something brand new under the sun might be coming into being, you know? In the long run, what do you want new consensus to turn into? The truth is, it was very difficult. What I really wanted to do was to really fill out the Green New Deal and not even necessarily call it the Green New Deal anymore because on both the left and right, the Green New Deal is just completely misunderstood. Really what it is, is it's a call for you know, a new industrial revolution that's going to be executed by corporations because they're the ones that own the economy. But people on the left don't want to hear that because they don't like corporations, right? So they're kind of dreaming that somehow we're going to transition to net zero. We're going to like completely transform our whole built economy without corporations really being in any kind of a leadership role, right? The right just has this other fantasy, you know, they, they, the right just lies about, you know, what the Green New Deal is even proposing to be. But if you actually have a serious conversation with like, with people on the right, they believe that corporations and, and not just on the, you know, hard right, but like the kind of right wing of the Democratic Party, business oriented Democrats and stuff, like they think that corporations will and must and should lead the whole thing. And there's a problem with that, which is that like corporate leaders don't want to blow up the world economy. You know, they just want to make a little bit more money next year than they did this year and then juice their stock price and then cash out with hundreds of millions of dollars. They want to buy back their stock to drive up the price. Like that's what they want to do. And that's what they've always wanted to do. And they're except with a few rare exceptions. If you want to completely transform your economy, you need corporations to do that work because they own it and control it, but they're not going to provide the leadership and private investors are not going to provide the capital, not, not upfront, right? Not at first anyways, right? So the government, there needs to be leadership by the government, but then, you know, to make this all happen. But then here's the other weird twist is it's not politicians or government bureaucrats who are going to provide that leadership, not in the United States anyways, because they don't know anything about how to run corporations or, you know, transform technologies, not in the United States. In other countries, it, it, it is often different. Like in, in China, bureaucrats are almost all engineers who worked in corporations, you know, running the economy. And that's who becomes government bureaucrats in China. And so they, so they actually... They, they are, they're actually pretty good at leading because they're actually from industry, right? So they're good at leading changes in the economy. Uh, but, and there's a lot of countries like that. And, and, and in the, in the U S in, in our gilded age, during which we were just like China over the last few decades, a lot of our public leaders were actually also engineers and those kinds of people. But we have a tradition in the U S of how to do this. We did it in world war two. 
And we've done it before. We did it in the Civil War. We did it after the revolution. And that is you take people who are good at building and transforming industry and you take them out of their private roles where all they want to do is run up their stock price and you put them into a public role. And in the public role, they, they're given a different mission than gin up their stock price. Their mission is, well, whatever you need to do. So what we need to do now is transform our economy to stop emitting all of these poison gases into the atmosphere and a bunch of other stuff. But you know, the last time we did this was around World War II. And the goal was build like an infinite number of tanks and planes and ships and a bunch of other stuff, right? And invent a whole bunch of new technologies like overnight. And so in World War II, Roosevelt hired Bill Knudsen, who was the CEO of GM, which was the biggest corporation in the world. He was Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and several other entrepreneurs all rolled into one. He, he had revolutionized the auto industry by, by making it so that, like, um, so that first Chevrolet and then GM could like release a new model of car every year, which they just didn't do before. They couldn't do it. They didn't know how to do that. And so he was all about like industrial transformation. He had worked his way up from the shop floor. He never went to college and he had worked at Ford and then at GM. And, you know, he, he had ties with everyone across our whole industrial economy. And so Roosevelt hired him and told him, you got to get our economy ready to build all this stuff. And so Newton just like ran around the country, just like doing deals with people and like getting them to build the stuff, like the machine tools that, that, that he knew we would need to then build the factories, to then build the tanks. And so for several years, like he just went around and did this and he didn't do it alone. He did it with this like big organization of tons of other engineers who had been managers in industry. And there were a bunch of other organizations as well that, that were also led by former industrialists who are now serving in public roles. And so like we actually have the ability as a nation to like take these people who are actually running and controlling our industrial economy and give them the mission to transform our economy into something different, right? Into something that achieves a particular goal. We know how to do it. We have most of the institutions we need to do it. The weird American pattern is that when we really need to do this transformation, what we do is we resurrect some of our missing like planning and coordination and investment public institutions. We recreate them and use them to do what they need to do. And then when the crisis is over, we then shut them all down. Like most industrialized countries, almost all industrialized countries don't do that. They have permanent coordination and planning institutions. But in the US, because because we're so rich and we have so many resources and such a small population relative to our resources and size, we're just so fortunate that, that like we just grow without even trying. And we have all these weird political tendencies and stuff that, that are in constant conflict. So that's why we always dismantle these institutions. In World War II, like, what the major institution was called the Reconstruction Finance Corporation. It was the biggest corporation in the world. And every day it was creating a new subsidiary to like do something that needed to be done to prepare for the war. Right. And, you know, like we didn't have any tin, we didn't have any tin smelters. Right. But we needed tin. So it just created a tin corporation and paid a bunch of other existing corporations to staff this, you know, to make some tin smelters and operate the tin smelters. And I could go on 
for hours more, but I won't through a million other examples of the, you know, of how this public corporation got all this stuff done. But it wasn't government bureaucrats. It wasn't even the government. It was a corporation, but it was a publicly owned corporation with a mission, right? And it worked with private corporations and a bunch of other organizations were involved in a lot of leadership. Sorry, very long answer to the question, what what am I trying to do? I'm trying to write the plan to accomplish this transition to a green, clean, sustainable economy using the American traditions and American style institutions that we know will work. Well, you don't lack for ambition once again. (laughs) (laughs) I want to ask you just a couple quick questions with quick answers. Okay. Um, I don't don't know if I can do that, but I'll try. No, go ahead. Yeah. Are you running for Senate in Missouri? Uh, No, that was like, that was going to be like just sort of a performance art piece, you know, like. Because you're listed as a candidate, as an independent. I I know, I know. I was going to, but then Lucas Kuntz uh, said he was going to run. I was wondering about that because I would think you'd be kind of aligned with him. I am. He's great. And um, I've met him a a few times and um, he actually like. I had him on the show, by the way. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Back when. I was starting brand new Congress. He actually like reached out when he was working at the Pentagon and I like went in and had lunch with him at the Pentagon, which is like, it's like going to Starfleet Academy. It's really wild. There's all these people in different uniforms from all over the world, you know, and it's really amazing. Back then he was doing some crazy disarmament work or something for the world, saving the world. But yeah, he's really great. I love what he stands for. I was assuming that it was just going to be like some terrible Democrat running against Josh Hawley. And I was just going to like make TikTok videos where I talked about stuff and trolled Josh Hawley. Maybe you should do that anyway. I'm just going to try to have fun with it. Well, there's no like rationale for it now. So, you know, I can't be like no Democrat can win because. One thing I I just want to ask you about is there is a new old development around relational organizing. Right, which how am I going to give a short answer to this? You look, look at how you're, you're picking the wrong questions to ask me if you want a short answer. I've got a short answer out of the Senate thing. Okay, um, <laughs> okay I'll do my best. I'll do my best. There's a lot of tools now for relational organizing, companies around it, there's consulting firms around it. There's been some significant experiments in campaigns for Congress and statewide campaigns. There's been a little bit at the presidential level. What do you think about this development? Well, let's see. Before I give you my honest answer, before I give you a sincere answer, I need to first ask any of these consulting firms, because I'm kind of associated with this relational organizing stuff after writing the book and doing the stuff with Bernie and everything. Are any of these consulting firms, are they making enough money that they could hire me for that that kind of OMP uh, ThoughtWorks gig where I advise their clients on the side? They would be wise to. And <laughs> but maybe they don't make enough money to actually afford to do that. I, I will inquire. And, and you know, I'll tell you what, <laughs> they might be among the few people who would make it to this point in the interview. Exactly. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> right. So I wouldn't be surprised if, if they wouldn't mind having an ambassador or a uh, advisor or something like that. It, it all depends on how much money they're actually making, if they can do it. But, you know, the other thing about the long interview, I think you should drop your slight ambivalence about the length of the interviews, because like all of these really great interview podcasts are all like three, four hours. 
like I'm making my way through like a four hour interview right now on a podcast and they're all these are really popular. So I personally, since I'm interested throughout the interview, I don't mind whatever length and I don't really know or care very deeply what other people think as long as some people write me a nice note every once in a while saying they I'll organize people to say that please but no but uh <laughs> but but also also i'm not complaining because you have let me go on for a long time here oh and also do you do the do you ever put like a little clip at the very beginning of the podcast i, I do always so could so, okay so please put this clip at the beginning i like listen to everything i listen to books i listen to podcasts you but not everybody knows you can speed up the playback to like 1.25 or 1.5. So listen, people, put it on 1.5 speed. You can do that because I'm going to sound way smarter at 1.5 speed than at one speed. Well, I'm a notoriously slow talker. Uh, yeah. And I'm a slow talker and thinker. Me so, too. You, have yeah. to, you might have to crank me up to like three. <laughs> <laughs> I listen to books at three, actually. Like my, I'm a terrible reader. I can't read. That's why I could never actually be an academic in the old days. But now everything like Kindle will machine read you books and I put it on three. Okay. So I'll give you my honest answer about the relational organizing. It depends. Like it, the, the problem with, with, you can't start you can't start out with it depends. That's just a weak start. <laughs> Make a strong statement well, here. <laughs> well, it, no, but it, it it's like what are you trying to accomplish? If you're as one person, if you're trying to organize a union in a factory of 500 people or 200 people, and if you want to be the one organizing those people, then you got to do the kind of organizing I was initially trained to do, which was build a relationship with every single person in there. And then use those relationships to like make stuff happen. And if you're really charismatic and like really good at building relationships and just like tireless about knocking on doors and talking to people, you can do that. And the, the generation of union organizers that trained me and a bunch of other people, they were charismatic, they were driven, and they built all these relationships with workers. And they organized like one factory or nursing home of two to 300 people at a time and built up union memberships at union locals of like, you know, they, they added one, two, 3000 people to their memberships of their local unions. And they were stars of the labor movement for doing this. Right. And so if you're a company and you want to change your employees approach to a certain thing, you know, if, if you want to root out a discrimination or sexual harassment, then you're going to need to do relational organizing to make a change in that environment. I would also argue if you want to win, you know, the Iowa primary or the Nevada primary, then relational organizing would be a good way to go about that because you have two years and a very small number of voters to, to move, right? But if you want to win all of the primaries, if you want to win Super Tuesday, then relational organizing is not going to help you. It's just not. Because you can't develop that many relationships with that many people, right? So the question is there, do you then just give up on organizing and just say what, what Hillary said and just have a good message and raise $500 million for TV ads? I've had people argue that, that the relational networks that are developed in campaigns can be extended 
and should be extended over time so that if you have set up some a structure where in every city, in every town, there's somebody that you've assembled all these networks and people are connected to each other and you know who, there's no reason that that can't exist from cycle to cycle and continue to grow and be employed potentially on a Super Tuesday sort of scale later on. Do you think that's possible? Mm, I mean, I think that that's happening on the right, but it's because there's like a movement on the right that is like a truly indigenous movement among the people, right? It's really in the community, you know, and and it's because it's largely based in churches, but the Democrats don't have that. The place where the Democrats do have that is actually in a lot of black communities where there are black political machines, you know, and traditions, the new, you know, smart people in the Democratic Party, they hate those machines, you know, and I saw this on the Obama campaign. So it's like the one place where you actually have that relational uh, network establishment, like the really smart, you know, new people in the Democratic Party, they almost have like an immune response to that community. Like I saw this on the 2008 Obama campaign where all the really brilliant people running all this great organizing that was like supposed to be relational organizing on the Obama campaign, they just hated the the old black political GOTV machines. They were just like, those people don't do anything. I would go over to the church and like see what was actually happening. And they had like photocopiers, they were printing maps and lists and they had vans and the, you know, and they were doing so much, you know, and they were turning out so many voters it was really just racism actually, you know, among these, like this overwhelmingly like white Obama 2008 organization that just like rejected that anything cool could be happening there. But the Republicans have that on like a really massive scale in like every, every red community. And I living in the Ozarks for a big chunk of my life, as it turns out, I I got to witness that close up and it's a pretty powerful thing. And you see that kind of thing in other parts of the world and in like, you know, like Modi, Modi's uh, BJP, you know, which has been around for a hundred years before the BJP, it was the RSS. And it's so deeply rooted in a huge chunk of the communities in India. And and it, it, it's just, it operates on all this incredibly deep level, like where people are literally going and getting their neighbors to come out. You can't build that kind of thing. Like America votes back in 2004 and, you know, um, and, and like a presidential campaign, you can't just build that. And then, um, you know, it just doesn't work that way. And the only way you could build it is people only come together like that when they feel like something so huge is at stake, you know, that it's their very identity and that it's things like the future survival of their nation or of the world. We may well have an election coming up where we, you know, facing a Trump or a DeSantis or someone like that, where we have that feeling. But it's different, right? Because when Democrats are like really upset about Trump, you know, they're like, oh, my God, if this guy gets in again, who knows what he's going to do, you know? But that's a really different thing than like Christians in America who are like, the universe is run by God. God has this plan God wants this thing to happen on earth. And like, I need to fulfill that because God is God. And because my parents and my grandparents and my great grandparents all were in on this 
mission, you know, of fulfilling God's plan on earth, you know. Every Sunday and Wednesday, I go to the church and I study God's words and I sing songs with these other people and we cry and we dance and we, it's a whole nother thing than just being like, oh my God, if Trump gets in, what the hell is going to happen? There's been so many projects that have called me and said, will you advise us on our plan to turn yoga studios into a mass movement that will rival the Christian world, you know? And it's it's not going to happen because people are going to yoga to, like, feel good about their back, you know? I'm not confident <laughs> if you're selling yourself for the job with one of these companies. But um, there there you go. Well, but I, but I think that it's – but I think that if you want to accomplish, like, a goal, there's, like, then yes, practice relational organizing in your company or in your caucus, Right. But what we tried to show on the Bernie campaign and what we tried to show in the book that that we wrote, that Becky and I wrote after the campaign, was that was that there's this other way of organizing, which is better than and more effective than paid staff relational organizing. The kind of organizing that is embraced by most like organizations that get a budget for organizers, right, is you hire 10 organizers and those organizers go out and make relationships with people. And then those people manage a few people around them. But that's where it stops. It just ends there. Like that was the Obama snowflake model, which was very, you know, which was a big thing and it was a really big advance. In, in um, you know, in a bunch of states, they had this organizing where they'd have like a thousand organizers in the state. And those thousand organizers would each have like five volunteers who were organizers. And then each one of those five volunteers, organizers, would have like five followers. But that's where it stopped, right? So it wasn't like recursive. It didn't go on forever. That's because, you know, whenever you're trying to build something in, whether it's in physics or in organizing, if you have energy loss at each level, you know, you can only go so far, right? So what we tried to do on the Bernie campaign was we still had energy loss, right? But instead of having our paid staff build relationships with five organizers, we had our paid staff run this machine that like minted volunteer groups on a massive scale. We relied on this principle of there being amazing organizers already created, already prepared. This is the lesson that I learned as a union organizer. They're already there. They don't need their consciousness to be raised. They don't need to be trained how to be organizers because they are already organizing in their communities, you know, and in their workplaces. And so you just want to engage those people in this project on a massive scale so that you can actually win primaries, not just a tiny little caucus with two years of effort and like a thousand paid staffers. You want to be able to like make something massive happen with like millions of people all working towards this goal all at the same time. So there is relational organizing happening, but that's happening at the level of these volunteer groups that are like getting together and doing their work and then getting each other to come back and do more work. Right. And so, but what we try to do is set up the conditions for those formations to fall into place. And we set up the structure and the conditions for those formations of relational power to fall into place, but on a massive scale. We were doing it in parallel instead of in serial, 
right? And and I feel like it worked, but I almost feel like it's like this nuclear fusion experiment, you know? Like we're we're like, oh, we we got it working, we got it working, you know? But like the minute these very specific structures that we set up were gone, it dissipated into thin air. You know, like I just listened to this long podcast about fusion, and they're like, like you you don't have to worry about a fusion reaction taking over because, like, the minute it touches anything the rest of the universe is so cold compared to the heat that you have to create for the fusion that it just instantly goes out. You know, the flame goes out. And like, that's what happened on the Bernie campaign in 2016 when, when the normal organizers, not from our team, would, would take over a state, when the state would finally get staffed. The normal organizers would like, they would try to do what we had been doing, but they just like left out certain elements because we had this like really, really specific technical machine that worked. And like, if you just took a couple of those pieces out, the whole thing stopped working. It just would revert back to organizers calling through lists, paid organizers calling through lists, trying to get people to come down to the campaign office to phone bank, which meant very, very small numbers of people volunteering. Because how many people can a hundred paid staffers get over the phone to come down to the office? It just doesn't scale. One thing that's been sitting in my mind since the beginning of this interview has been, how do you feel about your career? Because there's been a, a kind of a subcurrent of like, I've missed out on an opportunity to make a lot of money as a consultant or a start a company. And I'm now in a position where like, I'd like to get hooked up with another OMP type job. That's like a small percentage of what I've heard as, as you're recounting this. Well, you need to make ends meet. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, as you're recounting this kind of amazing <laughs> walk through high levels of our politics and being in important places, doing important things for many years that anyone would be proud of. How do you think about your career as a career at this point in it? Well, I mean, I don't know if it's been a career, actually. I don't know. I get, what, what is exactly the question? What I really wanted to do all along was help there to be a political revolution that would transform America into a place where everybody had access to a good means of making a living so that nobody needed to live in poverty anymore. And so that actually everybody would get a good education and have access to great healthcare. And also that we would then hopefully not feel the need to go blow up other people's countries because we didn't know what else to do. I just really wanted to do that. That's what I've really wanted to do. The really weird thing about my experience, you know, in my work is that there there eventually came this moment when it felt like that that might actually be doable, which was after the Bernie campaign when I had a, a few really talented, really amazing people that that were actually wanted to try to do that project with me. And, you know, and where there was, you know, and where journalists were willing to write about it and where we could actually raise money online because so many people were excited about the potential of this idea, you know, raise enough money to like hire a whole staff and get people working on it and everything. That was really weird because, well, why wasn't I working on that all along? Because I couldn't ever find one person, not even one person who would entertain that idea. And I tried everywhere, you know, like everywhere I was, everywhere I was working, I was, I was like, what about this? You know, and with the new organizing institute, I would, 
like, you know, at the end of the day, I'd be like, hey, who wants to go talk about the revolution? And we'd like, there'd be a meeting in the basement and all the trainees would be there and they'd be like, oh, this guy that started the training program wants to talk about some cool political thing. So I'd start laying out the pitch. I'd be like, you guys should all go to work on these presidential campaigns, but like, here's the real goal that we should be shooting for. And everybody was just like, what are you talking about? You know, like, no, like we're just going to elect a progressive and then everything's going to be great. And so I literally could not find one person, you know, to, to get excited about this idea. My trolls are all like, Zach's had this idea for his whole life. You know, this whole thing is like, you know, just told Justice Democrats, brand new Congress thing. Zach's been trying to do it his whole life. And then they point to these uh, videos where like I pitched Netroots Nation. I did like a lightning talk at Netroots Nation in 2013 where I pitched this idea. And I was like, anybody, anybody? And everybody was just like, no. When I would meet these people who would be potential good candidates, I was like, hey, why don't, what do you think about this idea? No, you're crazy. I don't know what you're talking about. And of course, that's the reason why the first attempt with brand new Congress and Justice Democrats, we only wound up with 15 candidates because when we talked to all these amazing people who would have been great candidates, they were just like, no, of course not. I'm not going to waste my time on that. We're not going to win and there's no way to do it. And I was like, but no, don't you see that if we get like 400 and we all stand on the Capitol steps and announce our campaign, we're going to get press and the money will start pouring in and it's, there's going to be this momentum. It really would have worked. But we couldn't get enough people to say yes. Yeah. So anyways, that's one interesting thing I can say about my career is that uh, it wasn't really a career. I really wanted to do this one thing. I had to make a living and I wanted to gain skills. You know, and one thing leads to another and you have weird skills that you never would have thought like online fundraising. Like I never would have thought that I would have that skill writing fundraising emails, but that turned out to be a, a skill I really had. You know, you find different ways of making a living. And I mean, you know, what a great era to be a lonely revolutionary because I was able to work for these cool companies and do all this cool stuff. Whereas, you know, if you read about the past revolutionary generations, like these poor people were like working in mines to make ends meet, you know, <laughs> they were organizing unions in, in the tundra or, the Dakotas, you know, in the middle of winter, you know, and stuff like that. As somebody who's trying to make a revolution happen, I was really, really lucky to have uh, all this cool stuff I could do along the way. So, yeah. I mean, it's a funny kind of lonely revolutionary who often finds himself affecting millions of people. That was really a very cool feeling was like working at Move On and sending these emails to millions of people back when people actually read the emails because it was a really different world back then, <laughs> you know. At Move On, at Kerry, at Bernie, at, at all these steps, that's like, these are each situations where you are in a certain sense getting to use your voice to talk to vastly bigger groups of people than most people do. Yeah. And that, that was very, I mean, Wake I was up, really Wikipedia lucky, too. really lucky and really, really lucky and really privileged to be in those positions because it, it feels cool, you know, and also, but also the way I saw it was that not only did it feel cool, but it, and it was very exciting. But I think if you want to have a revolution, like the, the reason I went into those jobs, whereas I think most cranky lefties, you know, don't seek out those kinds of jobs is because I I felt like maybe someday I'll actually get a shot to do something, to work on something that is kind of revolutionary. 
And it would be really great to have skills of like how to talk to millions of people at a time, how to deal with the press, national press, national media, how to get your stories covered. And I got all those experiences in all these different places. And uh, yeah, so. Not only that, the Inflation Reduction Act has billions and billions of dollars in climate efforts that that may well not have been there, but for the work of people like you. And that feels very nice to think about how things like, you know, the Green New Deal, I think the Green New Deal did have a really big impact. And, you know, because you had a situation in uh, the 2020 primary where the candidates were competing with each other to out Green New Deal each other, you know. And even though Biden didn't endorse the Green New Deal, which I actually think was kind of smart of him, he said, I'm going to do something even bigger. I'm going to do like a World War II scale massive transformation. And he was talking about that during the primary. And I, you know, I was like, but that is what we said with the Green New Deal, you know, <laughs> but no, the Green New Deal was just taking away your hamburgers as it came to be understood. Biden really embraced it. I think partly because of Biden's age, you know, he remembers an industrial America. And so he, he kind of gets it better than anybody else did. So yeah, it's all very satisfying. At the same time, the planet is not only because of climate, but I really think, you know, humanity is on course for extinction or worse, just like endless, really horrible misery. Like billions of people in the world already live in total misery, incredibly hard, incredibly terrible, unhealthy conditions, right? In all kinds of ways, billions of people. And the stuff that's coming is just horrific. And climate is only one of those threats. So I'm not that excited. Fortunately, we're getting pretty old. So exactly. But the problem is you have the kids and then, no, then you have to worry about the kids. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> is there a question I should have asked you that over the course of this time I didn't? Oh, I don't know. I'm always bad at answering that question, but, uh, oh yeah. What's my PhD topic going to be? Oh yeah. What, what would you write your dissertation on? Should you be funded by a kind listener to tackle that? Yeah. I, there's many different, uh, topics. I have a whole list, but the one that I was talking about earlier was the consequence of the disappearance of working class organizations, work organizations that represent working class people and the disappearance of working class organizations that are led by working class people. And is there a consequence that just about every organization that's speaking out for working class people and the struggles of working class people primarily in rich countries, but also more and more in, in um, non-rich countries, they're all run by college graduates, you know, university graduates, often people that come from very privileged backgrounds. But does that have something to do with why we don't have a really big, powerful, like working class movement anymore, the way we used to? Not long ago, you know, in the, in the 40s and 50s, in the U.S., uh, up until then, there was these massive working class movements of workers, millions of people at a time marching in the streets, organizing entire industries and organizing so powerfully that they jumped from poverty wages to the equivalent of making like $100,000 a year. Even today, you know, a lot of auto workers in the union are making more than $100,000 a year. Uh, and... Um, you know, that, that was the standard wage. My, my grandfather, who worked on the railroad, just, you know, turning a thing every now and then, made the equivalent of $100,000 a year, you know, and got a pension for the rest of his life. The way they got that was like this incredibly powerful mass organizing. 
Those organizations, if you read the history, they were led by workers. They were led by people that came out of came up off the shop floor. We really don't have that anymore in general, but you have a lot of people that are from very privileged backgrounds and that went through university and just basically adopted this whole set of of ideas and goals and and worldview, you know, that are really alien to working class life. But they're the spokespeople and they're the leaders of working class organizations. And I think that that has really killed like our chances of having a working class kind of based led revolution or or political movement in you know in the world really. Maybe it doesn't matter actually because we now know that AI is going to replace the professional university educated classes before the workers. So so in another five or ten years when we get the fully functional human machine on Zoom, not in a factory, but you know, on Zoom as a remote worker, then the entire middle class and per- professional class is going to lose their jobs, except except for the nurses and uh, maybe the teachers, because they actually have to be there. Then maybe the the professional classes will actually be the the oppressed revolutionary class, and 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 that's where we'll go. I don't know if I'd want to fully inhabit your head with the the worries <laughs> that are there, but uh, I think we all share them to some degree. <laughs> it's been. A real honor for me to get the chance to talk to you for this long. I hesitate to say this, but anything else you want to say? No, <laughs> I think we'll just call it a day there. So, yes. <laughs> well, thank you much. <laughs> that was Zach Exley. He is at ZachExley.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.